Hey man, got a quick question for you. What would you do with an extra hundred thousand dollars? No, you don't have to go embarrass yourself on TV at a wrestling camp. No, you don't have to win any challenges out in the desert. All you've got to do is go to savewithconrad.com. You may not realize it, but there has been six figures of savings hiding in your own house. No, it's not in your drunk drawer. It's not in your attic. It's not in your basement. It's in your mortgage. You're overpaying your single biggest bill and you may not even realize it. Here's a quick test for me. Do me a favor. Take your monthly payment and multiply it by 360. That big, scary number you're looking at, that's what you're really paying for your house. That's what we call the total of payments. When you add up all 30 years of your existing mortgage, that big, scary number is what you're actually paying. And when you see that, you'll realize, uh, Houston, we have a problem. But don't worry. If you got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out SaveWithConrad.com while Dave Silver revolves it. Okay, that was corny. But the point is, I can get you out of debt faster and do it with cheaper monthly payments. If you're in a 30-year loan right now, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. I'm routinely helping people get interest rates in the twos and cut years. You hear me? I said years of unnecessary house payments off of their loan. And here's my question. If you could keep paying roughly the same monthly payment, but pay your house off years faster, why wouldn't you do that? Keep more of your own money. And really think about what it takes to save $100,000. Now, if you don't do this, you're going to work for that money, pay taxes on it, and then just give it away. Why would you do that? Set yourself up for real financial peace, for real financial freedom, and get rid of your single biggest bill, your mortgage. By the way, we're routinely helping our listeners get rid of all their credit card debt. And I'm talking about mean, nasty, ugly credit card debt that's 18, 19, 20, 21% interest. If you've made a minimum payment on your credit cards this year, you owe it to yourself to run the numbers right now at SaveWithConrad.com. I'm routinely helping people pay their house off faster by getting rid of their other consumer debt, like car loans and credit card debt. They're saving five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. Oh yeah, still going from a 30-year loan to a 15-year loan. Now you don't need perfect credit to do this. You don't need money out of your pocket to do this, but you do need to spend 10 minutes right now. Just let us run the numbers for free at savewithconrad.com. It's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't help you out, we won't waste your time. We've recently been able to approve credit scores in the 500s. And oh yeah, you even get to skip your next two house payments. So why wouldn't you do this? It's a no brainer. It's savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And did I mention we're licensed in 40 states? Yes, that probably includes your state too. Check it out right now at savewithconrad.com. There's no better time to say I love you and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Stephen is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Stephen has a ready for love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Stephen won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but he's recently kicked everything up a notch to better service friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. 
Interest-free financing is available online too. And that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing well. Coming at you once again from the I Hate Stephen Singer Studios here in Cody, Wyoming. Beautiful Saturday morning, getting ready for a great weekend. Looking good, man. Feeling good. It's all good. Sure is cool of uh, old Stephen Singer, not only to make the best engagement jewelry around, but also build you a studio in the middle of Cody, Wyoming. I mean, that had to be quite the expense. Yeah. And, and I, I have to tell you, there are people in this town who absolutely hate Steven Singer. Now they happen to own jewelry stores, but you know, they're having to compete with a guy who is, who, who is broken the paradigm. He's reshaped the business to get people the best quality they possibly can Steven Singer. And that's why so many people, even here in Wyoming, those who own jewelry stores hate Steven Singer because they just can't compete. I know the feeling <laughs> turns out he's like the third most hated person in Cody. It's Kanye West, then Eric Bischoff, then Steven Singer, but Steven Singer might be coming for your number two, most hated spot. Well, we'll find out. Bring it on, bring it on <laughs> and Kanye. I'm coming for you. And by the way, people love Kanye here. Oh, he's, listen, he, Kanye's a, a, a music, like a, I know that I'm going to get a little hate for this, but you go back through his catalog and stuff. There's some real genius in there that he's created. And I realize that he's a little eccentric. He can rub people the wrong way every now and again, but I don't know how you couldn't be a fan of some of the stuff he's cranked out over the years. Well, not only that, but look at what he's done for business. You know, Kanye is building a big uh, manufacturing and warehouse plant here in Cody, Wyoming. That's going to be employing a lot of people in a town like Cody, small towns across America. One of the biggest challenges people have here, if you're a business owner is, um, hiring staff because, you know, kids grow, they get through high school and they realize in a small town, there's very limited opportunities. This is a tourist based economy. And unless you want to be a bartender or a waiter or a waitress, you know, for the rest of your life, you've got to go somewhere else. So, you know, between kids going off to college and people who choose not to go to college often go to Denver or Billings or other larger cities where there's more employment. So, you know, keeping people here, especially young people and providing them with great opportunities is a challenge in, in a tourist based economy. Um, but you know, with Kanye opening up a business here, he's get, getting a lot of local support. So, uh, now he's, he's, he's way more beloved here in Cody, Wyoming than Eric Bischoff is. Uh, it makes me happy to know that you're still officially the most hated man in the territory. That's right. You can't take my spot <laughs> before we get started. I want right at the top for us to plug the brand new movie that just came out this past weekend. You cannot kill David Arquette, man. You're all over this thing. And I got to tell you, I didn't know quite what to expect. I got really excited about a month, or so, a month or so ago when we saw the Twitter uh, that, that had trailers all over it. I mean, my Twitter feed was just overloaded with clips. Uh, but now that I got to sit down and watch the whole thing, start to finish, 
man, this was really, really incredible. I managed to watch it twice through because Megan started about halfway through and she was like, wait, what is this? And then she wanted to watch it all the way through again. And what a great movie, man. This exceeded all of my expectations. Have you had a chance to see it yet? What do you think? Well, I did. I, I saw it several months ago. In fact, over at adfreeshows.com, I did an interview with David um, right after it was announced. This must have been back in May or June. I did the, the adfreeshows.com interview with David Arquette talking about um, this this documentary and what he went through. So I encourage people, if you're an adfreeshows.com member, go back and look in the archives. You'll find it. If you haven't checked out adfreeshows.com, this would be a good reason to do it. It's a great, great interview. And obviously I've known David a long time and I was a part of the documentary and was able to, to talk to him and interview him from a little different perspective. And I think most people do or have, but I love the movie, man. I, I was, like you, you know, I, I don't know why, but my expectations were, were not that high for it. I, 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 I should have given David more credit going in cause he's a, he's a film guy. He's a movie maker. He's an actor. He's a writer. He's a very talented dude. And you, you know, you learn a lot about David in the interview that I did over at ad free. Uh, I was really impressed with the, the storytelling, the emotion, the, you know, just how open David was about personal issues and challenges in his life, not just, you know, with regard to wrestling, but it just in life. And it's a really, really raw, unfiltered, honest look at how much David loved wrestling and what he put himself through to try to, in his own mind, I guess, um, apologize for, for, his role in WCW and the anger and all the things that came with it, the heat that he got for it. <clears throat> he was, he was anxious to prove that he wasn't just doing it for a buck. He wasn't just doing it for five minutes of, you know, publicity or notoriety. He was doing it because he truly loved wrestling. And that emotion really comes out in his film and you have to see it. You know, me talking about it is one thing, but I encourage people to check it out. Yeah, just so you know, you can get it anywhere you enjoy digital movies. I actually have Apple TV in my living room, and there was an option to rent it or buy it. I bought it. I would encourage you to do the same. You're going to laugh out loud multiple times. I had to press pause. It was doubled over in laughter on more than one occasion. Two that I will never forget. Uh, he really knows how to tell a story. He knows how to take you on a ride. It's really impressive. I mean... David Arquette has really won over a lot of wrestling fans with his sort of comeback tour the last couple of years. But I think if you watch this movie, man, I don't know how any wrestling fan couldn't love this. And, and by the way, you don't have to be a wrestling fan to enjoy it. We've talked about it a lot here on the show. My wife is not a wrestling fan, but she was like, oh, can we start this over? I mean, she was so enthralled with it. So happy with it. I mean, it's really one of the better movies I've seen in a while. And I, I think that a lot of people are going to think that I'm just trying to shill for a friend, but I'm not tight with David Arquette. I've met him a couple of times and he's a nice guy, but he really did a remarkable job on this. And I see why it had, you know, unfortunately COVID changed all that, but there were going to be a lot of film festivals and a lot of, a lot of people talking about this movie and then the world changed. So, uh, do, uh, the wrestling business a favor and go out of your way and watch this because Arquette has really done everyone a service here i think you know and and i know that's we're talking a lot about this movie um and that's not what this show is about today but i one of the other things that i really liked about the movie 
there were, there were so many things, but one of them that stood out to me is when David went down to train in Lucha Libre down in Mexico and they were doing their street performances. Yep. They had street matches and intersections and they'd put on a little match for two or three minutes while people are jammed up in a traffic light or whatever. And then they'd go around and, you know, take donations for their performance. And I just thought that was such a cool, and, and I'm sure people, you know, that study wrestling or Lucha Libre in particular, much more than I have, um, weren't surprised by something like this, but I never knew, you know, that kind of thing existed. I never knew that that went on either. And when I saw it, I was just like, man, that is just, I, I, it's one of the reasons, you know, I lived in Santa Monica, Mrs. B and I had a place in Santa Monica, uh, for a long time, several years. And our, we had an apartment. It was right on the beach in Santa Monica near an area called the Third Street Promenade. And one of the things that we used to love to do on the weekends, and it would start like at 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, is you have all these street performers that, that would be out playing. And I was amazed at the quality of the talent that are, that are just out there, you know, playing their hearts out because they love it for, for nickels and dimes and occasionally a dollar or two. And it, it kind of reminded me of that. I think they're, they're referred to, you know, around the world as buskers, street performers. And I, I actually pitched a, a, a television series uh, uh, about street performers to CMT way back in the day because I was just fascinated with it. And I think that's probably why I was so excited about this part of the movie is because it, it reminds me that, you know, when you go out there and you love doing something so much that you're out there performing in the street. Yeah. Not in a ring, in a freaking street. And they're going at it. They're doing a great job. And the only thing you're going to get is, you know, whatever people hand out the car window to you when you're done. And I just, God, I just love that kind of stuff. It's going to be regarded as one of the best wrestling movies ever. So don't think it's a joke. Yeah, for now. <laughs> Sorry. Well, no. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. <laughs> a little inside baseball. Uh, for at least the next couple of years, this is going to be regarded as being near the top of the list. Go out of your way to see it. Uh, I hate that I sidetracked the show this morning, but I'm just really excited. I'm glad you did, brother. David deserves it. So good. Go out of your way to check it out. Now, today's topic, well, it's maybe a little less than good. It's TNA No Surrender 2010. Uh, just last month, we covered TNA Hardcore Justice 2010, which was uh, a de facto ECW reunion show. And now we're back to the regular roster building towards no surrender, which happened on September 5th, right there in the impact zone. So right at 10 years ago now, as we're talking about this, this, uh, wow. Be the 10 year anniversary this coming weekend and Meltzer would write in mid August. It looks like we've got yet another new direction this time based on a feud with the heel fortune group against this EV 2.0 group. The big angle is on the August 9th show and it saw a beat down on EV 2.0 resulting in serious injuries to RVD and teasing that they could in fact be career ending. So they're doing a tournament for the vacant TNA title. And at the August 10th tapings, when Eric Bischoff announced the tournament, he said the finals would be at bound for glory that may or may not mess up advertising. The company had sent to cable companies building no surrender around Kurt angle versus Jeff Hardy, but it could also just end up being the title finals. The plan all along was for angle to go through the top 10 and end up as the champion. Let's talk about this, Eric. We've, we've discussed this concept a little bit in wrestling. Why a tournament concept? Who was, who was really pushing for a tournament? Who was a fan of a tournament? These have some wrestling fans, love them. Some wrestling fans hate them. 
Are you a fan of the tournament and who was pushing for it sort of behind the scenes? Uh, you know, I don't know that any one person was pushing for it. It was like so many things, kind of a collaboration of ideas amongst a lot of people. Um, I, 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 my vote for it again, I wasn't heading up the creative. I wasn't really involved too much in creative in 2010, a little bit, but not, not a lot. Um, I, I supported it. Let me first say, I don't like tournaments. I've, I've always, not that I don't like them, but they very rarely work that well. Um, because they're not story driven, you know, they're, unless the stories kind of emerge from the tournament itself, then they can be story driven, but for the most part, they're not. And that always makes it tough. And, you know, a couple of my notes here, you know, I had a hard time throughout this show watching it back now, 10 years later, um, really trying to figure out who's the heel and who's the baby face. Right. What's was it? There's no issue here. And unless you're really good at laying out and executing match stories, not backstories, not promo stories, not angles that happen outside of the ring. That's not what I'm talking about, but the, the kind of match psychology that really works well for a tournament so often it's just like, ah, this is great, but why do I care? And I found that th throughout this show a couple times, and it's unfortunate, you know, I, I don't want to get into the matches yet. We'll do that when the time is right. But, you know, the opening match with Jen Me versus Motor City Machine Guns, I was like, my, I was sitting there this morning, you know, spilling coffee all over my lap because my jaw was open as I'm trying to drink it. My mouth was I'm just hanging shut, hanging open because the match was so good. But I didn't really care who won right all right eric let's run a timeout right now and tell everybody something you and i have been doing off the air that we've really enjoyed of course we're talking about our friends over at ancestry dna now here's the thing there's many paths to finding your family story whatever way you choose tracing your family generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity with ancestry dna Whatever you're looking for, it's easy to get started with Ancestry. An Ancestry DNA test will tell you where your ancestors are from and Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their personal stories. You can find a famous relative or perhaps a photo of your great grandma as a little girl. Whatever you find, it's sure to change the whole way you look at your family history and yourself. After all, the story of your family is the story of you researching your family is a fun activity for the whole family and the stories you learn about their history and your shared past can bring you closer together we have had a great time doing this in my family my mother's maiden name was jones of course my dad's a thompson these are kind of common names so it's been really fun to separate the rumor and innuendo from our real story and ancestry dna can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you what countries you're from, but it can even pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, giving you insightful geographical detail about your history. You can trace the paths of your recent ancestors and learn how and why your family moved from place to place around the world. No other DNA test delivers such a unique interactive experience. It's easy to start making discoveries with Ancestry. Just grab an Ancestry DNA kit 
and start a free trial to amplify your discoveries with Ancestry's billions of records. This has been a blast to do for me and my sister, my mom and dad, and even on Megan's side. We've had a lot of fun with this. Start exploring your family story today. Head to my URL at Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks. I didn't really care who won. Right. I love the match. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't care. And I think that, and maybe that's just me, man. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm unique in the sense that when I watch a match, I want to care who wins or loses. I want to be invested. I want to have some emotional connection to the outcome of the match. Even if it's just a little bit, I want it to be satisfying beyond just the phenomenal athleticism. I'm not knocking the athleticism. I'm not knocking the style. I actually love it. I want to see more of it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Let me make that clear in case you, in case you're unclear. I love the style of match that we saw with Jen Mee and, and Motor City Machine Guns. What I'm missing, though, is just a reason to care. Yeah, the emotional connection. And the analogy I would make in the scenario you're talking about is, you know, everybody listening to this knows I'm a big Alabama football fan. Well, of course, I'm emotionally invested in all of their games. Now, for instance, let's say we turn on Michigan and Ohio State. I don't really care who wins. I just want to see a good game. And I think that's what some of these matches wind up being where wrestling fans absolutely love the athleticism and what happens bell to bell, but maybe it's not their alma mater. Maybe it's not their home team. Maybe they're not emotionally invested And the, the matches where you are emotionally invested, uh, inevitably become the ones that you connect with the most, you know, good matches come and go, but the ones you really care about, those are the ones that really make a lasting impression, right? They do, and it sustains the industry. You know, I, I, and I've, I, I go off on tangents, and sometimes you know these tangents can last a month or two, where I'm so obsessed or focused on storytelling, and the lack thereof, or or when it's really good, I, I get excited about talking about it. Um, but you know, if you look at where the wrestling business is today, across the board, I'm not going to name any companies in this comment. I think storytelling is what great storytelling in some cases right right now it's really good there are stories that i see that i really like there are matchups that i see that kind of create anticipation for me even if it's subconsciously i want i want to check that one out you know but storytelling is what's going to grow the audience action is what's going to sustain it meaning great action great wrestling as you put it bell to bell your, your core audience, the people that just that love that, that watch wrestling because they just love the action in the ring and they love the physicality, the athleticism, that's your baseline. You're not going to go anywhere, provided you keep producing great matches. But in order to take it from five to eight or from three to ten, in other words, to grow that audience and bring in people that you don't already have, that's going to require really great storytelling and consistent storytelling. That's when people get emotionally involved. Whatever the angle is that you want to pick as, you know, one of the best angles ever or best storylines ever. Let's use Stone Cold Steve Austin, for example, in this this regard. You know, people, first of all, 
people love the character, which is always important because if they don't like the character, it doesn't matter what story that character is in. They're not going to buy into it. But when you've got a great character and now you're telling the story between Steve Austin and Mr. McMahon, um, which was the first time they'd ever done anything like that in WWE that I can recall, at least at that level where you've got, you know, the, the, the top performer getting pissed off at the boss, so to speak. You know, that, that is, that story, it was the foundation that really, it was such a solid foundation in the, in the foundation. It's like, if you're building a house, you know, you pour foundation and your concrete footers, depending on where you live, you know, in Minnesota, those things had to be like, they had to go down at least four feet, if I recall correctly, because of the frost line. So you really had to build a strong foundation you know, if you're building a house in in Wyoming or excuse me, in Minnesota, well, the deeper and stronger that foundation is that storytelling foundation is the easier it is for two great characters to reach a level. Like we saw with Steve Austin and Mr. McMahon or the NWO angle, or, you know, pick your favorite angle with your two favorite characters. It doesn't matter. They had a great story. And I think today for a lot of reasons, there's so much emphasis on, action and not enough emphasis on structural, basic, fundamental, I know it's the same word, but fundamental storytelling. When, when those two things sync up, that being, you know, the phenomenal presentation that we're seeing in the ring and in many cases combined with a really solid storytelling foundation that's consistent across the board, that's when your audience is going to go from, you know, 2 million to 4 million or 1 million to 2 million or whatever the case may be. But right now it seems like we're servicing the core audience. We're servicing the baseline. I say we, like I'm doing it. I'm not doing it. It seems like the producers of wrestling today are servicing their baseline. They're satisfying their existing customers really, really well. But I'm not seeing anything that makes me go, wow, even if I'm not really a wrestling fan, I'm going to check this out. Or maybe I was a wrestling fan five or ten years ago, but I've lost interest, but this is really good. We're seeing some of that. I will tip my hat to AEW in this case. We're seeing more of it there, but we need a lot more, especially, I think, in WWE. There's just... Man, it's just fundamental storytelling is lacking. And I, I know they can do it. There's a lot of great writing talent in, in WWE. And I think the world of them and have the utmost respect for them. But for whatever reason, that talent and the ability is, is, that they've aggregated at WWE isn't, for whatever reason, able to kind of get that story on paper and, and get it to TV. Because it's just, it, it sometimes you'll see glimpses of it. You go, okay, they're on it. They've got a great one here. And then two weeks later, it's almost gone. And it's frustrating as a fan. So we've got this tournament set. We're going to have a new world champion uh, based on what we think the cable systems have. It's going to be Kurt Angle and Jeff Hardy in the finals. Let's talk about some news and notes as we head towards the pay-per-view Rob echoes. This is directly from the observer who had a tryout with Bobby fish at the last set of tapings has signed a deal. Echoes 26 has been a longtime Northeast independent worker. Fish didn't get an offer as they felt he didn't play to the crowd enough. and was too bland. Fish worked the match. Like it was a contest while echoes was more outgoing and did crowd work. Of course, these days we know Rob echoes as Robert stone as a part of the NXT brand. And of course, Bobby fish is a part of the undisputed era with NXT. 
both of these guys go on to be pretty good stars here for the WWE's NXT initiative. Do you remember this, you know, tryout process? I mean, were you involved in that at all for TNA? Because it does feel like there's a lot of young talent sort of coming and going here that are going to go on to be really big stars. And they just one by one, a lot of them just slipped through TNA's fingers. No, I was not involved in, in any of that process. And, and, and I made it clear. I didn't want to be when I negotiated my contract with TNA, I stayed as far from hiring and firing as I possibly could. Um, so no, I don't recall it because I wasn't a part of it. I probably didn't even watch their match. It just wasn't, wasn't my responsibility or in my wheelhouse, if you will. Right. Um, but, you know, and I don't know who was probably Terry Taylor is probably Terry Taylor and Dixie and more than likely Russo um, and wh- whoever else. I don't even know who's in the process. I, I, I really don't. But oftentimes what I did see was a lot of tryouts, they got a lot of tryouts, but TNA had a very limited budget. Right. You know, you, you look at this pay-per-view, you got Sting, you got Kevin Nash, Hulk Hogan was there. Um, McFoley was there. I mean, there's a, there a lot of high dollar talent on that roster. Now, a lot of that was covered by Spike TV in, in, in the case of the larger contracts like Hogan and Sting and then Kurt Angle, obviously there, Jeff Hardy was here. I mean, the, the roster was loaded and a lot of that roster was subsidized by Spike TV. So it really wasn't coming out of TNA's pocket directly or or at least a hundred percent of it. Um, but setting those big contracts aside that again, were subsidized by the network. TNA had a pretty small budget for talent. And I think a lot of times they were just running people through there to get a look at people with not a clear intention of actually adding to the roster, unless it was something really exceptional that jumped out to them. Um, that's just my impression. Again, not being involved in the process. I don't want to cast any stones or aspersions or criticize anybody, but that was my impression in 2010. Let's, uh, let's talk about the fact that Roderick strong, also a big deal, not only for ring of honor, but we know he's going to be a big deal for NXT. He has a tryout at the August 10th, uh, edition of the taping. So there's just a lot of talent here. It is interesting as you sort of rattled off all the names there, cause you talked about, well, they had Hulk Hogan and they had Kevin Nash and they had sting. I think a lot of people, when they hear that think how many Roderick strongs and Bobby fishes and Robert stones could you have had if you got rid of just one of those bigger quote unquote older names. But I do think that's a balance, right? Like you've got to have a name that fans will turn on the channel for. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never had a specific conversation about this, but I would guess that Tony Khan, when he was trying to put together AEW, felt like he needed a star that is recognizable. Well, that's Chris Jericho, but he probably also wanted to make sure that the, the viewing audience at home could relate to and, and had some familiarity and well, that's Jim Ross. So I think. That's probably part of the strategy, but it did feel like where Tony maybe went with a lot of younger talent, up and coming talent, talent we weren't familiar with. It feels like there's more of an appetite for TNA here where we want established names. So if you were a big star in WCW or WWE, we'll give you a shot. It doesn't matter how spectacular your matches are. 
it might not be enough if you don't already have that name. That's been the narrative on TNA. Do you think that's fair? Yes and no. Um, you know, uh, on this show, we're getting a look at Generation Me or Young Bucks, as we know now, who are, who are obviously a, a, a huge success with a much younger demo over at AEW uh, and even a more established or an older demo. You got Motor City Machine Guns here. You've got a lot of young talent here. You know, keep, keep in mind, you know, two, how long have AJ Styles been around in 2010? Five years? Eight years. Four years? Eight. I don't even know. Eight years. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a long time. That's a long time. Um, but as, as a kind of a, a well-known national, you know, celebrity or, or star, you know, outside of TNA's bubble and it was a bubble, yeah. um, outside of the TNA bubble and in the, the core audience, you know, that, that they had at that time, not a lot of people knew AJ Styles. Correct. And I think he still fell into that, you know, much younger developing category, even though he was heads and tails above so many others. And he had been in the business for eight years. Um, he wasn't really a big draw outside of the TNA core audience because he hadn't had the exposure, not because it wasn't good enough. Clearly. I mean, we see that now in WWE He's one of the top talents in WWE, in my opinion, but back then, you know, he didn't really exist in the minds of a lot of audience outside of the bubble. So if you want to make the bubble bigger, you've got to get some people that you got to get some talent that audience outside your current bubble recognize and are, are willing to, to check out and possibly invest in. So you're right. It is a balancing act, you know, and I, obviously Tony has done a great job. I think TNA might've been overdoing it a little, not might've been Hulk Hogan. I'll throw myself in there to a degree, not, not on Hulk's level, obviously, but you know, I was fairly well known by then outside of the TNA bubble. Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Sting, Kevin Nash. I mean, it's just a who's who. Kevin Nash, Booker T, Jeff Hardy, Mick Foley, Kurt Angle. I mean, Kurt Angle. I mean, that's a, that's a top heavy roster for a company. That's only got one show a week. Right. And doesn't tour. I mean, they did, but not without, not with that top talent. So I, I think they got a little top heavy, but I, I know the intention at least was to be able to use that established talent, the, the Booker T's and the Jeff Hardy's and the Kurt Angles to help get some younger talent over. Right. That was the intention going in. I think there was a little too much daylight between the intention and the execution though. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk a little bit about, um, well, I guess we should mention on the TV after hardcore justice, the whole F and special Kurt angle defeated AJ styles. Angelina love is going to get a win over Madison rain to win the knockouts title. Shannon Moore is going to debut in a losing effort to Jeff Hardy and the motor city machine guns defeat beer money in a two out of three falls match to win the tag team titles. And in the main event, RVD and Abyss, uh, with you, Eric, as the referee, RVD is going to pin Abyss after a bunch of hardcore gimmicks were used. You know, you've said pretty plainly what you think about gimmicks being used in matches. And now here you are in the middle of it. What do you remember about that car crash? Just that I hated it. First of all, I don't like being a referee. It's just, I don't like it. Um, I've done it 
several times. I did it in WWE a few times. I don't know if I did it in WCW or not. Probably. Usually I would try to avoid it. <laughs> if somebody suggested it, I try to, I do my, I put on my salesman shoes and try to talk my way out of doing it. Um, unless it made really good sense. I really didn't like it. And I especially didn't like it in a match like this. I just, I don't even like watching them. So I sure as hell didn't, you know, get excited about participating in it, but for whatever reason, evidently it made sense. And I went along with it. After the match, Hogan comes out, puts over the EV2 2.0 wrestlers, and then the TNA wrestlers attack EV2.0 with Fortune leading the way. And the show ends with Flair cutting a promo on Dixie Carter. And of course, this all leads to the vacating of the title. And the next week, Meltzer would say apparently the reason RVD lost the title is because he signed a contract with a specific number of dates for the year, and they're already running low on the number, even though we're only in August due to booking him on so many house shows. He could have dropped the title in the ring and taken time off, but to kick the angle off and build something for his return, they decided to do it this way and do a world title tournament. Man, this is, I don't know. It feels like one of those LOL TNA moments. You've got some momentum. You've got a champion people believe in. It seems like he's got a little bit of steam. Oh, but we've overused him. So let's just take the belt off of him. What do you think of that? What did I think of that? I think, yeah, it's, it was frustrating and <clears throat> I'm only hesitating because I want to be careful that I don't repeat myself and, you know, say the same things I've said on other shows about similar topics. <clears throat> there was a disconnect between live events in TNA. There was a big disconnect between live events and the operation of those live events and how they were executed strategy and so forth and television television drove tna the only revenue really that tna made was off of television it was the licensing fee that they got from spike tv they they toured but not very successfully and on a very limited basis um so the television money and when i say television that includes pay-per-view because weekly television is the infomercial if you will for your monthly pay-per-view. But aside from television and pay-per-view, there was no real revenue coming in, but there was a department headed up by a guy by the name of Andy Barton. I don't think Andy had any experience. He may have, and I just am not aware of it or wasn't aware of it, but I don't think he really had any experience in the live event business. Nice guy, smart guy, but no experience in live events. And he was under a fair amount of pressure, I think, internally from headquarters in Dallas, that being Panda Energy, I believe, and Dixie's family, to build that that weekly uh, revenue stream in, in house shows. So I think because, and I'm just guessing here, I wasn't involved in it. I, I, I didn't sit in meetings. I didn't discuss it with anybody. I'm just telling you what I saw as a fly on the wall. There was a huge disconnect between what, television needed and what live events needed. And if this is true, and I don't know that it is or it isn't in terms of Meltzer's reference to RVD running out of dates on his contract, that could be something that he, he meaning Dave heard or made up or assumed who knows when it comes to Dave Meltzer, where he gets his information and why. But that being said, we all know how I feel about, the way Dave reports things. It could be true. 
It could be. And if it was, it would have been an example of the right hand meeting live events, not knowing what the other hand was doing. And that was always frustrating. It, it really, really was. Now, I, I didn't complete my thought of imagine that when we first started, when you asked me how I felt about the the title tournament, I, I threw my hat in the ring and voted for this one only because it, I, I don't like tournaments in general for all the reasons we've already stated. But the one reason I did like about this particular tournament and the reason I supported it to the degree I did is because it led to Bound for Glory. Bound for Glory was... I think it was the most successful pay-per-view TNA did. Yeah, it's, it's their uh, WrestleMania. Their WrestleMania. So I like the fact that even though it was a tournament and the stories that were so desperately needed in TNA weren't really you know, the backdrop of any of the matchups in the tournament because of the nature of tournaments, we did have stories emerging out of the tournament, as I mentioned earlier, and they led to a payoff at Bound for Glory. So that's this is one of the rare exceptions where I, I kind of went, yeah, that makes sense. A tournament makes sense here because it's really just a slow build for Bound for Glory. There's no better time to say I love you, and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate Stevensinger.com, and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but he's recently kicked everything up a notch to better service friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers, that's IHateStevenSinger.com. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about, uh, some, well, news and notes about Hulk Hogan. There are a couple of strange Hulk Hogan stories in the last few days. TNA officials were saying Hogan was going to undergo yet another back operation on August 12th, but Hogan was also booked for a radio interview that day. There was a purported Hulk Hogan, Twitter account opened on the 10th Hogan or someone pretending to be Hogan was tweeting about TNA being great and how much he enjoys working with Dixie Carter. Hogan was on Bubba the Love Sponge's radio show in the morning and plugged the account. Bubba plugged the account. And then Eric Bischoff, who said Hogan set up the account, plugged it on his Twitter account. Then a few hours later, Hogan's account twittered that Hogan and Bischoff had an amicable parting of the ways with TNA after a meeting and even wrote that people should still support TNA. Minutes later, Bischoff on his Twitter posted that the account was fake and the story wasn't true. He said that wasn't Hogan's real Twitter account four hours after plugging it that it was. And Hogan is in the process of setting up an account on the fake Hogan Twitter account. Someone who claimed to be a TNA employee said it was a hoax and was talking about how he was able to fool Bischoff and Bubba and said it showed that Bischoff had no business running a company. Not sure how those two are related. He said he doesn't hate Hogan, but he hates Bischoff 
and that Hogan isn't helping the company and is only taking money from the company. He noted that a lot of the people in the company are earning less than they did back in 2006. This entire thing is quite strange. That's Meltzer's recap. Boy, the Twitter information age is, uh, interesting to say the least. What do you remember about this nonsense? Zero. <laughs> I mean, as, as you're reading this to me, I mean, that was a weird time. Hulk was in a tough spot. Um, because of the amount of pain that he was in and the surgeries he was going through, his life was upside down. There was a lot of stuff going on in his life. You know, we've all, we, we've talked before how I felt about him being on the Bubba the Love Sponge show. That was always a mess that needed to be cleaned up after the fact. Every time he went on that show, there was some kind of a mess that had to be cleaned up. Um, but I, I honestly, this was 10 years ago. It was a Twitter thing. Um, I look, I've been duped on Twitter before. Yeah. I, I actually, a little bit off track, but not really. Um, I was looking through my social media feed the other day and I see somebody retweeting what absolutely looked like a tweet from my account, my picture, blue check mark. I mean, it, I don't know how they did it. I don't know what the technology would be or, or any of that, how they did it. I don't think I was hacked. But I, I, there was a tweet that had sent, that had been deleted pretty quickly that looked like it was coming from my account. It fooled me um, <laughs> using my own account <laughs> for a second. And it, it said, I'm so broke, you know, I'm willing to allow people to punch me in the face for money. And I looked at that, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I looked at that and I, now here's the good news. You know, I don't, I, I make jokes about drinking a lot, you know, and having fun and all that. I don't really drink that much anymore. You know, if I'm out, you know, if I come to visit you or if we go to an event or something, sure, I'll sit down, you know, with everybody and have, have cocktails at the bar and hang out and have fun. It's not like I'm a teetotaler, but you know, on, on any given week, uh, I may or may not drink two or three beers or have a cocktail. Um, it's not a big deal in my life anymore. Thank God, because the first thing I thought of when I saw that is like, like, did this happen years ago? And I was drunk tweeting for fun. And I thought this would because a lot, you know, here's the thing about Twitter. And I've learned this the hard way. Believe me, sometimes I'll tweet things that I think are funny because in my head, they're funny when I tweet them. Right. I, it, the context is in my head and I know what I'm trying to do and I get the punchline, but there's no tone. There's, there's no nuance. There's nothing in Twitter. And I've often tweeted things out that I meant I intended to be funny. And then after I read it back, you know, a day later, I go, fuck, that wasn't funny at all. Right. Nobody's going to get that joke. The joke was in my head. It just didn't communicate. So in my mind, when I'm reading this, what looked like a tweet that I posted, I thought, Jesus, did I, was I drunk tweeting in the middle of the night? Did I, was, I, was I tweeting in my sleep? Why don't I remember this? Because this is something I would remember, you know, it. So it happens. And maybe I was fooled. Maybe I saw it and went, wow, if Hulk's going to put that out there, I should support it because that's how I am. You know that. Yeah. I, I, you know, Ron Funches, you know, was tweeting and I, you know, I've met your buddy Ron. I don't know him. Right. I mean, I know him, but he's not like, I don't hang out with him. He's not a good friend of mine. He's just someone I know, but he's a good friend of yours. Right. So when Ron was tweeting something last week about a new show that he was doing, I reposted the hell out of it. 
because that's what I do. Right. If I see friends or even friends of friends, you know, doing something or promoting something, I don't have to have anything invested in it to support it. I just do it because hell, that's what social media is for. Support your friends yeah, and people that, you know, so this may have been the case, you know, that, that Dave is referring to here. Maybe I saw it. Went, wow. I'll put it out there. It looks like his. Sure. I'll, I'll support that. And then find out later that it was, it was a hoax. Look, it happens. Right. Um, you know, I, I'd like to meet the person that put that out there. I'd like to sit down and have a conversation with that person, share with them my feelings on the subject <laughs> and how I, how I think it affects people and why I think it's the wrong thing to do. In fact, last week, somebody on social media brought to my attention that there is a fake Eric Bischoff Facebook account. And my response when they tweeted this out to me is, look, I feel sorry for people that are so disappointed in their own lives that they have to pretend to be somebody else, you know, to get a tickle. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, generally how I feel about this stuff. But yeah, if I, if, if the guy, you know, if he duped me and I fell for it, okay, I'm guilty as charged, you know, whatever. Uh, hypothetically, if you start letting people punch you in the face for money, can we wait and do that at Starcast five? Cause that would really be a hit. I don't, you know, and, and unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, I guess I'm glad it didn't get out there, but uh, any more than it did, but it was, it was like deleted shortly after it was posted. Cause I, I, I thought, well, I'm going to find this person and report him because you know, who knows if, if whoever did that was talented enough to fool me and make it look like it was actually coming from my, my own account. I, for a moment, I would, I, I was afraid I got hacked. It should be a horrible thing just because you got to go through the process of whatever it is you do after you've been hacked and or deleting your entire account and starting over. And I, I don't want to do any of that. But, man, it looked like it was my tweet. But, you know, think how dangerous that is. You know, you're, you're in the mortgage business. Just imagine. Oh, yeah. Know. Well, I mean, listen, we, I mean, had, we talked about it briefly, but one of the most, like, high-profile cases of this that happened behind the scenes, not on social media, but just – through the underground was a fake Tony Khan texting people like crazy, like, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And I mean, he fake texted you, he fake texted Bruce. I mean, hell, he even got Sonny and a few others. And I don't even know Sonny, but she knew me or had my number somehow and texted me and said, Hey, this is Tammy Sitch, blah, blah, blah. I know you're friends with Tony Khan. And he just called and left me a voicemail, blah, blah, blah. And I said, uh, what's the area code? And she replied and with the whole number. And I said, that's not his number, but you got the same thing. It's weird that there's this like weird subculture of wrestling fans who, and we just saw the latest, maybe grossest version of it with fans trying to ruin the Thunderdome, you know, where they're putting up pictures of Benoit or KKK rallies, or even a, a beheading. I mean, I don't, I don't understand this weird. Let's mess everything up approach that we get from odd wrestling fans. Well, I don't think it's just wrestling fans, brother. It's life. Look how yeah. fucked up people are today. I mean, I'm so grateful that I live where I live because I'm not, I don't have to walk around in it. I don't have to see it when I go to the gas station to fill up my truck, or I don't have to deal with it when I walk into a, a store or a restaurant. I don't have to deal with any of it because a crazy shit doesn't exist here where I live. But when I travel, you know, you see it and it, people are just so 
I don't know, man. I, I think starved for attention. I don't want to go deep into the weeds on this because it'll bore the fuck out of people. But I, I, I think social media is a great thing. I'm, I'm, I love it. I have fun with it. I've learned to have fun with it. I've kind of found a way to have a sense of humor with social media that I don't feel embarrassed about the next day and people generally get. And usually it's self-deprecating kind of stuff because everybody always gets that kind of humor. Um, but I've learned to have fun with it and let all the negative hateful shit just roll off my back. I don't pay attention to it really. But I think what's happened with social media is for some reason, I'm not a social psychologist or any of that, but it just seems like people are are becoming more and more distanced from each other as human beings and relying more and more on social media as their connection to community. And that's an artificial connection. You're not really developing a real relationship there. And I, I think people are starved for real relationships and it manifests with this kind of crazy thing. People just feel the need to feel important and to, and to get attention and they'll do whatever they have to do to get that attention. And we see it everywhere. It's in the news everywhere. I, you can't get away from it. I honestly guy kind of, right. I was thinking about this the other day. My, my routine every morning is I usually get up early. It depends on the day. Five, five thirty, whatever. And I, I like to have an hour or two to myself where I'm not talking to anybody. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm not planning anything. I just sit down with my dog. I watch the sunrise, snap a picture or two, maybe take a short hike and get my own head straight um, be, before I start to do anything. But man, when the minute you turn on the news or the minute you know you turn on the radio, you just bombard with people, and I mean people in a high profile, celebrities, politicians, you know, athletes, which are also celebrities, I guess, but people are just doing stupid shit. And I've started turning it off. I'm a news junkie. I'm a current events junkie. I have been since the eighth grade when Mrs. Fields at Edgar A. Guest Junior High School on Frazier Road in East Detroit or Roseville, Michigan, she she really inspired me to pay attention to current events and to understand them. And since that time, I've always been into it. Not anymore. I can't see I'm watching it. I turn it off. I haven't watched. I'll check into the news. I usually check in around 6 o'clock in the evening when I'm done with my day. Um, and I'll watch it for an hour just to find out what's going on. Or I'll, I'll use social media to find out what's going on. But I don't watch it anymore. I used to have the news going on 24 hours a day in my house. I mean, it was always on because I just love current events. I can't watch it anymore. So now when I get up, I do my thing with my dog. I, I get caffeinated. You know, get my head on straight. And I jump in my truck. I drive a 1995 GMC 2400 ranch truck. And I mean r- 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 a Wyoming ranch truck, which means it's beat the fuck. That's that's what a ranch truck is. Ranch truck's got dents all over it. It's dirty because you're out in the field. I, I dented my truck up irrigating um, alfalfa fields by hand because I thought that would be interesting to learn how to grow alfalfa one day. So I partnered up with a local friend of mine here, and we leased like 160 acres of ground and grew alfalfa because it's a big thing here for horses and cattle. But anyway, I digress. I I go down to the – there's a lake not far from my house. I grab my dog. I go down to the lake, and I turn on local radio. It's all community-based radio. 
I find out what's going on at the high school sports level and what's going on in local politics and what the budget issues are and who's running for what and all the things that are going on in my local community. That's my brain food in the morning. That's how I relax and get kind of up to date because it's, it's just normal. It's just normal human beings interacting the way normal human beings should interact. But the minute you watch national television or cable news or you spend too much time on social media, you see just how fucked up people are. And I don't like seeing it <laughs> I just don't, or being a part of it or being affected by it. So I, I shun it. <laughs> Everyone knows the risks of driving drunk. You can get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But let's take a moment to look at some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet, too. You could get arrested and incur huge legal expenses. You could possibly even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking and designate a sober driver or call a taxi. If you know someone who's been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but there's one thing for sure. You're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. This message was brought to you today by NHTSA. Let's talk about something you're not shunning. It's a new TV show makes the, uh, trades here. Bischoff and Jason Hervey are co-producing with Haima Washington, a show called lay it down, a music talk show hosted by CeeLo green for the ruse network. Uh, I gotta tell you, I'm not really super familiar with the ruse network or lay it down. What was the concept of a music talk show here? Uh, you know, we had started working with CeeLo and like a lot of people back in 2010, well, a lot of celebrities, you know, celebrity was a really big thing back then. Right. Um, so we, we developed the show for, with, with CeeLo and, uh, took a run at it, never went anywhere, but you know, that happens, you know, you, 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 you sell 10 shows out of the 10 you sell, you may actually produce four of them. And out of the four that you produce, you'll be lucky if one hits. So th this fell into the four that we produced, but didn't hit. Let's uh, also mention that Lance Cade passes away on August 12th. Any memories of Lance? He was uh, there with the company, the WWE, when you were up there as a general manager, I think. Did you ever have any fun interactions with him? Very little. Um, I think we did actually uh, share a car on one trip. Um, I, I don't remember where I probably spent a couple hours together, uh, just getting to know each other, general conversations, not too much about wrestling, you know, his background, whatever it was at the time. I don't remember it, but it was a, it was just a very uh, casual, when I say superficial, I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way, but it, it wasn't a, you know, important conversation. It was just two guys stuck in a car going from one town to another, having a general conversation. He seemed like a nice guy. Seemed like a very nice guy. Um, got along with him fine, but no real memories beyond that. Let's talk about a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, oh, something bubbling beneath the surface here. On the 23rd of August, the Observer would write, Cornette responded to Eric Bischoff this past week. Bischoff wrote something about how it takes eight years of television before people are really over to where they draw money. 
and asked his followers who in wrestling draws money. A bunch of people brought up ring of honor names and Bischoff wrote about how it shows that they have no clue what drawing money means and then called ring of honor quote, a backyard vanity project for marks. Well, Bischoff was right about that. Nobody in ring of honor is drawing money, but Jim Cornette rightly as well brought up the funny nature of that comment, given that TNA has lost tens of millions more than ring of honor. Boy, Bischoff Cornette, that's the podcast to end all podcasts. Of course, we know it's not going to happen, but do you regret calling Ring of Honor a backyard vanity project for Marks? And do you still believe that it takes someone being on TV for eight years in order to really draw money? Um, yes and yes. His, his, first of all, again, you know, Jim Cornette making the statement, making the statement, TNA has lost tens of millions of dollars. I'm sorry. That's not true. And I am no big defender of TNA. Don't get me wrong. Um, however, Jim Cornette, as he often does, and it's it's really unfortunate because I there's something about Jim Jim's in his rants and the, you know the stuff that he says. I enjoy listening to him sometimes. Of course. Um, because he's good at it. You know, he's good his rants are good. He's 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 good at what he does. Unfortunately, he takes things away too far and he's now become almost non-existent, which is probably a good thing um, for him. I think the less he says, the better for him at this point um, and his beautiful wife. Um, but you know, he's bombastic. He makes stupid statements. We all do it. I have certainly probably still will in the future at times when you're trying to make a point. But the point that, you know, Tina has lost, you know, millions of dollars compared to ring of honor was not true. You know, based on what I heard internally, there was about a 30 million. And this was not from anybody. This was not from anybody in management. I want to make sure I make that clear. Um, but I, I had a, pretty good reason to believe that the initial investment into TNA, uh, by Panda was about $30 million, something to that effect. Allegedly, I'm going to use that word a lot here was allegedly about $30 million. And they, and, and that they got a return on that investment very quickly. Um, the challenge was that after the initial return on investment, there was no continual funding. There was no growth funding. It was maintenance funding. But despite TV money and the pay-per-view money, TNA was profitable. Now, it may have been nickels and dimes profitable, but it was profitable nonetheless overall. They might have had a bad year or two somewhere in there. But my understanding, based on things that I heard, was that TNA was pretty much at a break even point most of the, most of the time. So Jim was just flat out wrong there, but you know, he's wrong a lot. So that's okay. Why do you have such a hard on for Jim? It feels like you're being, I kind don't, of... I don't, I mean, I, I think he's a piece of garbage as oh. a human being. Um, but I've, I've only begun to feel that way. You know, that's something, you know, a year ago, you know, I thought, okay, Jim and I are never going to hang out. Uh. We're, 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 he's never going to come down to Wyoming and visit. You know, I'm, I'm never going to go to wherever the fuck he lives and, and hang out with him, but I'd cross paths with him. You know, uh, we did the WWE round, uh, round table or whatever they call that thing table for three. And I got along with him fine. 
and I shook his hand. We left and we, you know, we yucked it up a little bit and we had talked, you know, very, very briefly and sporadically about maybe we would do something together at a live show at some point. But it really wasn't until recently um, that I just look at him and go, you know, he is really kind of a piece of shit as a human being and have no desire to, to work with him now. He's kind of on that same list that Vince Russo was on. He's, I know he exists in other people's mind, but in my mind, other than having to refer to him in a question or as a part of a question, he doesn't exist in my mind, which is really unfortunate because he – he, he, he's, he's entertaining to a degree to listen to when he doesn't lose his mind and go off track. You know, he, he, the, the, the whole idea, and you know this because I said something about him living off his daddy's money and he took really, oh. he, that really drove him crazy, right? Because he inherited a bunch of money and I assume because he doesn't really do much uh, other than sell memorabilia, I guess, or whatever the fuck he does for a living. I uh, can't be making much money off his podcast or whatever else he does because he's got a pretty small audience. I just assumed, you know, that's how he was. And I said it kind of as a joke or a shot, I guess, but he took that really seriously. Right. And he called you and what was it? He says, yeah, yeah, either he calls or apologizes, and we're going to settle this. I'll, I'll do it with a baseball bat. It's like, fuck, I'll take the baseball bat. You know, come on, don't threat. I never respond well to threats. I never do. And for that, you know, soft, mushy little piece of shit to, I would, I would welcome him. I would give him a bat. Hell, I'll give him two in case he loses one in the process. Oh no. You know, but, but to, 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 cause he's, he's a punk. Who was it? Rick Bassman just challenging him. <laughs> Rick Bassman, who's all of about five foot six at 140 pounds, called him out. Jim never, to my knowledge, Jim never even responded. You know, and Jim is always a guy that's always threatening to beat people up. Yeah, I'll kick your ass. I'll, get, I'll meet you. To, how many times did he threaten to beat the shit out of Vince Russo with a baseball bat? First of all, he always has to have a baseball bat, which tells you a lot right off the bat. That's that's who he is. And I don't know. He's just he's a piece of garbage. Move on. Let's move on. All right. Before we do, I just want to stay clear. Do you like him? Do you I like, like him, him you a like lot. You? I find him to be funny and engaging. And I also know sometimes when he's, he's putting on a performance, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to give a peek behind the curtain, but my goodness, nobody's that fired up 24 seven. He's trying to entertain us on a podcast and I get that, but I've, I've had an opportunity to hang out with Jim in real life and man, he's one of the coolest dudes ever. I'm a big fan of Jim and I like his podcast. I listen to it. So, and I think they've got a pretty good size audience. I, I, I wish that you guys got along. I think if. Uh, I had you both over for supper. Everybody'd get along great. Well, maybe, and I'll, 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 I'll retract. I still think he's a piece of shit, but that's okay. I, I, I've become friends with people who I initially thought were pieces of shit. That's okay. That's life, man. Just it is. He's not on the same list as Vince Russo. Vince Russo's on the dead list. <laughs> Corner. Cor- Cornette's, Cornette's not on my dead list, but he's he's in critical condition at this point. Doesn't mean he can't come back to life. And I'm sure Jim will be excited as hell to hear about this, that he has a shot. It may be a small shot, but he's got a shot, you know, to 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 have a relationship with me. Um, I'm sure that'll thrill him to death. It'll make his weekend. But I, you know, I don't, I don't put him in the same category as Vince Russo. I think Vince Russo is the only person 
that I can think of off the top of my head that's in the dead category. Everybody else is, eh, whatever. I don't really hold grudges too long. About five minutes, and I move on. Let's talk about the eight years thing. Uh, now that we've just burned down the internet, and you're going to get ethered all week on Twitter. Talk Good to- deal. I love that. I love that. Give me some material. I dare you. I dare you, mucker fathers. Give me some material. Uh, his handle is at E. Bischoff on Twitter. By the way. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, eight years on TV. You don't really believe that. You don't have to be on TV for eight years to draw money, do you? Bullshit. Name, name. Okay, let's, first of all, let's, here's where this kind of conversation can go south pretty quickly. Because you've got to define what drawing money means. Yeah, come on. Tell me about that. What draws money? What is the actual quantification of your use of the term drawing money? Okay. How do you, how do you quantify that? Let's talk about it. Goldberg, did he draw money? Yes. Did he do it in less than eight years? Yes. And I've often said there are two exceptions to the rule. Let's make that very clear going in. I've said this time and time again, and I believe it just as much now as I did when I said it the first time, which was probably years ago, five, six, seven or years ago, maybe longer. I don't know. Time flies. There are two exceptions to that rule. In my opinion, one is Bill Goldberg and the other is the rock. What about Hulk Hogan? Hulkamania was running wild and he hadn't been on TV for eight years. He had been in the business quite a long time before he made it big as, as Hulk Hogan and WWE. I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing that, that he was on TV before, but it wasn't eight years. He wasn't on TV for eight years. He started in what? 1976. I thought it was a little later than that, but no, no, no. I think it was 76 or 77. When, when he first started, because keep it, you know, keep in mind, he was wrestling independence. He was doing a lot of shit where there was no TV 77. You're right. Okay. When did he really make it big? 84. I think most people would say 84 was the first year it went bananas because he won the belt to start the year. Yeah. But that's when he started drawing money. He was making money up until that point. Okay, but, but as as a bona fide now you we're going to speed through this brother you brought it up as a bona fide headliner this is where the other part of that definition comes in in terms of drawing money and quantifying that it's one thing to make money it's another thing to be a a a, a dependable draw where you know as a producer or a promoter whatever you want to call it you can put that individual in a storyline and draw money consistently over an extended period of time. Thank you, Mrs. B. She just brought me more coffee. Hold on, everybody. Fat coffee. This is fat coffee. This is even better than regular coffee. This is like nitro coffee. This is good shit. Um, But if if you are a bona fide draw, in my opinion, people have different opinions. People have different ways of quantifying things. But in my opinion, you're not really a draw until as a producer or promoter, I can sit down and go, okay, this, this is one, this is somebody that I can put in at least four or five pay-per-views a year and make big, big money. Big is, is another term. We'd have to decide what that is. Hulk didn't get there till the early eighties, mid eighties, 83, 84. You know, there's an old cliche, you know, people will forget what you said or what you did, but they won't forget the way you made them feel. I 
think that's like the best part of, of giving a gift. Like the difference between a good gift and a great gift is if they feel something when they open it. And if you want people to feel something, you got to go to paintyourlife.com. I wanted to give my mom the perfect Christmas gift this past year. I heard about paintyourlife.com. Boom. They made it happen. My mom's in love with her dog, y'all. Yep. Her dog. But I had paintyourlife.com do a portrait by a world-class artist all by hand, simply from a photo I took with my phone and my mom absolutely loved it. She cried happy tears. We got the same report from the Natchez house when we sent him and Wendy a picture last Christmas as well. This is a game changer. And I got to admit, this wasn't my idea. I was gifted one of these for my birthday last year. It's a picture of Megan and I from one of our favorite restaurants in Chicago. And now it hangs with pride in a beautiful frame in our dining room. And people are blown away when they see it. They think at first it's a photo. And upon further review, they realize, oh my gosh, this is a painting. Where in the world did you get this? I love that. Paintyourlife.com can make it possible for you. And I got to tell you, when I was a kid, you would see these TV shows or movies. And whenever you went to a rich person's house, they had some sort of ornate oil painting over their mantle. Well, how about you don't have to be rich to get one of these, but it is maybe the coolest gift you could ever give someone or hell gift for yourself. Why not get a professional hand painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price? I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's gotta be expensive. Nah, -uh. you choose from a team of world-class artists and you work with them until every detail is perfect. They've got a great user-friendly platform that lets you order custom-made hand-painted portraits in less than five minutes. The whole process is quick and easy. But how about this? You get the hand-painted portrait in just about three weeks. You can send any picture, maybe of a pet like I did, a special place, family, your children, yourself, maybe the house you grew up in, or combine photos into one painting. That'd be pretty cool. But this is the best gift ever. I know the holidays are a little while away, you got plenty of time to prep for that. But in the meantime, birthdays, anniversaries, wedding gifts, guys, you want to be a hero at the house, get a picture of your kids hand painted and give it to your wife. Done. King of the castle. If you don't have kids, go ahead and do a wedding photo as an anniversary present. Get out of here. This is meaningful. It's personal. It'll be cherished forever. I'm blown away with this. I think it's one of the coolest sponsors that we've ever had here on the show. And I would be telling you that even if they weren't a sponsor, I've got one hung in my house and at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting. Your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Text the word Eric E R I C to 64,000. That's Eric. To 64,000. Text ERIC to 64,000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Well, if we're talking about eight years of sort of honing your craft, I think that's different than eight years being on TV. That was my point. But, you know, and listen, I'm going to get blown up for this, but John Cena drew money and it didn't take eight years. Roman Reigns drew money. And how, long, how long did it take? How long did it take John Cena? Well, that's a great question. Let me look it up, but I'm pretty sure he started training in like 99. Yeah. I think, you know, he, he actually, I think, where did he start? He started with Rick Bassman. Yeah. Didn't he? UPW 99. That's exactly right. So 
I mean, he's probably 04 before he starts to really catch fire, but still we're five years. Oh, in. that's five years. Okay. So maybe it's between five and eight years. My point is nobody shows up on TV and is a dependable bonafide box office draw with the exception of Hogan and excuse me, with the exception of Goldberg and rock, in my opinion, um, nobody's really stepped in and become a draw overnight. They just don't. And, 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 and you've picked out a couple exceptions and, and Val and deservedly so with Goldberg and, and with rock. And you, you know, Cena was in the business for five or six years, I guess, before he started becoming a bona fide draw. But for the most part, look at Steve Austin. Steve Austin was in the business a long time. He was making good money, but he wasn't drawing money. To your point, he's but, eight years before he's on top. You're exact. I mean, yeah. the eight years thing is, is accurate for him. But you know, I, I mentioned a name there that you conveniently skipped. But you had a peek under the hood. Do you think Roman Reigns drew money in less than eight years? He started in 2010. I do. Yeah. 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 Yes. And I'm, I don't want to take anything away from Roman because I have a ton of respect for him, but he was thrust. He was pushed into a lot of positions, drawing money that he probably wasn't quite ready for. Yeah. No one will argue that. And WWE at that, you know, in 2010, they were in a position because WWE was the star. WWE was drawing the money, right? The talent was filling the positions that enabled them to do so. And there's a little bit of a difference when the company is the star and WWE did a great job. And they're, they're I think they're paying the price for that a little bit now because sure. WWE made WWE the star and all of the talent below it are supporting cast members. And some of those supporting cast members are higher up on this supporting cast member food chain than others. But WWE is the star. WWE is what draws. And depending on who WWE or Vince McMahon decides to put in those top positions, yes, presumably they're drawing money, but not quite the same thing. Not quite the same thing. Let's, uh, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about, you don't agree with that. Do you, you don't agree with me? No, I just, you know, I, I think we could get down the rabbit hole on this and this could be a two hour show in and of itself. And maybe it will be one day, but at least for now, let's talk about your contractual status with TNA. You did a slam wrestling interview around the same time. And you said that you and Hogan both had two year contracts and Meltzer would say, everyone else seems to think they signed a one year deal with a second year option. Is there really a difference? I mean, do you, was it a one-year deal with a second-year option, or was it two all the whole time? No, it was two years. I've never signed a one-year deal in my life, ever, I, and I never would. T talk about why not. Well, never say never. Never say never. But at this stage of my life, I might, because at this stage of my, my life, I don't want to get involved with anything for too long a time unless I'm really having a good time doing it. Um, but back then, I would never, uh, I would never even look at an agreement that was a one-year agreement. It's not, not worth it. And here's why not to be a dick and not to make it sound like I'm, you know, I, I value myself too highly. It's just, man, to, 
to thrust yourself into something, to really commit to something, to really formally engage in something and to dig down deep, it, it, it takes more than a year to kind of get your groove. It just does. And I wouldn't have put myself in a position where I'm going to have to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and, you know, commit myself to the degree I know that I have to. And after only six months in, start realize, realizing that, man, the clock is ticking. I don't like to work that way. Um, and I never have. You know, all my agreements uh, in, in WCW were either two or – I think they started – the latter, latter ones became three-year agreements – um, same, same was true when I was with WWE under contract. When I was there as an employee, uh, my, my last stint there last summer, I was an employee. I didn't have a contract. There were no contracts. Um, but when I was under contract, there were all two and three year agreements. I've never signed a one year agreement ever. Well, some guys who have some interesting agreements, we mentioned Rob Van Dam is going to be stripped of the title here. And they're going to go with this tournament concept because we're over his number of dates and apparently, or we're about to run out of that number of dates in the agreed upon contract, but apparently Rob had a provision in there that, Hey, I'll work your additional dates, but at a higher rate. So they're going to send him home for a few months here, let him cool off. And that way they can not wind up spending more over the course of the year. And apparently they're doing the same thing with Sting and Kevin Nash. Meltzer would say they've been booked sparingly for similar reasons, trying to keep down the costs, but they think they're going to have to wind up overpaying with Ric Flair because he's a big part of this angle. And they're just going to go over his number of dates and probably take it on the chin and just pay it. Um, it's an interesting idea. And, but one of the things that is scrapped here uh, when you go with the tournament is you abandon the idea that Kurt Angle is going to work his way up through the top 10. He's being the number 10 spot on the contendership for the title rankings. And they wanted him to beat number nine, number eight, number seven, number six, number five, go all the way to the top and really showcase him. But instead, we're opting for the tournament. In hindsight, do you think that would have been a better story? Or do you still think the tournament was probably the, the right call? No, I, 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 I would have liked the other story better. But, the, but especially after seeing this match between Kurt and, and, and Jeff Hardy that we're going to cover, um, I think this worked almost as well. It would have worked better the other way. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I, I like the structure of it better and it's a journey, right? Journeys always work, especially with somebody like Kurt Angle, who everybody loved. And he, you know, he, he had s so much believability and credibility, Olympic gold medalist, you know, WWE run. I mean, he was a legit, legit, legit star. Um, and for that star to have to work his way up from the bottom to the top, that's a great, just fundamental story, great foundation to build from as I referred to earlier in this podcast, that is an example of a great foundation to build a story from, but it, it didn't work out for a variety of reasons. And the tournament had to, to, to take its place, if you will. And, but it's still, you know, we still got that journey from Kurt. We still heard, I heard it in the promos for the show. Um, you saw it in the match. So yeah, it, it still worked, but not as well as perhaps a different, different type of story. Let's, uh, let's talk about another thing that you're going to debut here. It happens on August 12th. They do, they debut the new show reaction. It's like a post-show wrap up with interviews. Uh, Meltzer would say, while the angle at the end of the show with the big brawl could have been more effective if they hadn't just done it a few weeks earlier. And if people didn't see it as a copy of WWE's big summer angle, 
it was still important to do because they had to establish the new show in TV. The rule is when you're debuting something, you make it as strong as possible. So they did both the fortune beat down and to start to begin the whole fortune versus EV 2.0 plus the horror of the RVD angle and played it up as real as possible. Were you impressed with the debut of reaction and how close it, how close was it to your original idea? I w I was impressed with it. Um, you know, spike TV at the time I was working pretty closely with, with Scott Fishman and spike and Kevin K who was running spike, you know, and they were open-minded to an additional show. Uh, TNA wanted to do another show as a means to create revenue. And we were working with an extremely limited, there was not a lot of dollars to work with. So when they came to, it was Jason and I in 2010, we're, we're at, we weren't the most successful. We weren't even one of the most successful uh, reality television production companies in Hollywood at the time, but we were in the top six or eight, you know, we constantly had two or three shows on a variety of different networks, you know, at any given moment, uh, at one stage of development or production or airing. So we had the ability, we, we, we understood the product. We had the relationships with networks and we thought, okay, let's, let's create a secondary show where we can utilize the talent. That's, you know, it's kind of an economies of scale thing. We don't have a lot of money to work with, but Hey, we've got a production team that's already here. We've got talent that's already here. Let's figure out a way to produce something that doesn't cost a lot of money, but gives us an additional hour that we can sell and make money with. So uh, I came up with the idea of reaction and a lot of that idea came from in, in unscripted television, they call them fly on the wall interviews, um, which are different. You know, if you watch a WWE promo right now, you've got your interviewer standing there holding the mic. I mean, you, you know, the format you've seen a million of them. They're always the same. Um, and they're horrible. In my opinion, they're a complete waste of time. They do nothing for the talent. They're not real. They're not produced well. The talent isn't comfortable with the script. There's a million reasons why those types of backstage interviews that we see so often to me are a complete waste of valuable oceanfront property. It's like putting a fucking outhouse on a beach in Malibu. It's ridiculous. Whew. How do I feel about that, Conrad? <laughs> but, but we wanted to try a different style of, of, promo an interview where you really feel like you're getting to know the talent almost out of character, but not quite. And that was kind of the attempt at art with, with the reaction style interviews. And we used a different kind of camera. I used a Canon. It was, I think it was called the seven D at the time, which nobody in wrestling was using. And it, it gave you a much more, um, it, it felt like film. It just felt you know, when you watch a documentary, it just feels different than when you watch an action yeah. or a drama. And, and that's because of the camera that they use and, and, or the lens or both in this case. And we use this Canon 7D, which was new on the market at the time. Um, in fact, it might even have been a 5D. This is now that now the cameras have you know evolved so much over the last 10 years. But back then it was one of the, now we used them in unscripted. We used them. I used them in A&E. The, the Hulk Hogan um, special that we did for A&E was the first time we ever used that Canon 5D or 7D, whichever one it was. And the effect was just 
breathtaking. I mean, it was really, really cool. And I thought, man, if we could use the same technique on this show we're calling Reaction to get the emotional reaction of all the different talent that participated in the show that we just watched, it would, without having to worry about having matches and shooting silly angles in the back and all the the silliness that, that makes up so much of wrestling content or did at that time. Um, if we get something that feels real and gritty and honest and doesn't feel like everything else that we see, because it's, what is it? It's different than that. It might work. And we were able to produce that. We had, we were given a $25,000 budget to work with. We came in at about five or six grand an episode Wow! for an, for an hour of TV that was drawing between 800,000 and 1.1 million viewers at 11 o'clock at night. Let me repeat approximately $5,000 an episode for a show that drew somewhere between a low of 700,000 viewers and a million one, maybe a million two for the first few episodes. There you go. And we did it. And it worked really effectively. And a talent loved doing it because they got a chance to be – they didn't have a minute and 30 to try to get themselves or their angle over. Right. They could, And I remember you know, guys like Frankie and Chris, Frankie Kazarian and Chris Daniels and everybody that did it loved doing it. And then we tried to integrate more of that um, technique, if you will, into the, the actual show. And we were successful – for a while, but the, the problem that we had, and this is a little weedy, but the problem that we had with it is that when you shoot on, uh, that, that format, that digital format, five D or seven D you had to ingest it into your editing equipment in the truck. You had to process it and it took a lot more time to process th th that tape. If you will, it's not really tape, it's digitized, but we'll call it tape. It took a lot more time to digitize it and, and work it into the show. Uh, it was too cumbersome. So we weren't able to do it. We weren't able to sustain it during the impact show itself, but we were able to use it, you know, for the reaction shows and it, it worked great. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Well, I was just fascinated to talk about that a little more because I know for sure that you've, uh, you've really enjoyed talking about what a success that one was. Let's talk a little bit about some of the talent here and maybe the way they're mixing and mingling with sort of the old guard. Melsward, right? There's a lot of divisiveness in the locker room right now between the guys who've been there for years and those who are new to the company. The big exception seems to be Ric Flair, who was described as Teflon and that everyone on both sides gets along with him. Hogan is not disliked, but the feeling is they brought him in and he did nothing for business and he's not dedicated to the company, having it noted that he could go and do on sale advances and people would show up for his autograph and buy tickets, but that doesn't happen. I haven't heard people disliking Jeff Hardy or for that matter, even after his comments, it's not like people dislike Rob Van Dam, but it has been noted that both Hardy and Van Dam carry an attitude like they're quote unquote, bigger than the place. 
Van Dam, who was mentioned to someone that was, and is still generally well-liked, got a lot of detractors when he wrote, quote, I'd imagine a lot of the old TNA guys are feeling like they're taking a back seat. The thing is you can't argue with numbers. Last week, TNA broke new all-time records for ratings. TNA needed a change. The six-sided ring and the great technical wrestlers that nobody knew wasn't working. TNA brought in two rock stars and look at the company now. Dixie often points out how hiring Jeff Hardy and Rob Van Dam started a whole new era. Why do some wrestlers not see that? Too young, too green, too selfish to have the correct perspective. Whereas some of the TNA stars are lucky to get recognized walking around studios. Jeff and myself, we live like actual celebrities, signing autographs and taking pictures everywhere we go. Without experiencing this, it's probably hard to imagine. In fact, very few wrestlers stick out in people's minds the way Jeff and I do. We love our fans and we love their love. TNA is blowing up. Good things will come our way. And I see it all happening now. It's a very exciting time. More people watching TNA means more people exposed to the other wrestlers on the card too. As long as they're good enough to hang around with these new rising standards. So Rob Van Dam maybe draws a line in the sand there. And maybe it's a, it's a quote unquote working type of uh, deal. And maybe it's how he really feels, but I could see how that would rub some people the wrong way where he feels like he's taking credit for the company. And you know, some of the guys underneath were probably just looking for the opportunity that he had, but he thinks, well, I'm a real life celebrity, or at least that's the way it's presented uh, in his comments here. What do you take of this report from Meltzer that maybe the locker room is experiencing some divisiveness over this? It's typical Meltzer. You know, he's not back in a locker room. He never showed up backstage. Um, he's relying on probably Terry Taylor at the time, um, or, or somebody else. It could have been somebody other than Terry, you know, who has an opinion. I, I look, I can just tell you what I saw and what I felt. Forget about what I saw, what I felt, because sometimes you see things, but you feel differently about them than people intend you to feel. Um, there's a lot of phony, sh you know, shit out there. Uh, Hulk, I think, was genuinely liked backstage by everybody. He was he was such an easygoing guy, and he was working to. I mean, I'd like to. I'd like to. You know, and, and Dave will never do it because he's a bitch. But who who said this shit? Is this just people make? You know, is he making people up, or is he assuming? You know, from his remote location, wherever the hell he lives in California, that he can just somehow through mental tele telepathy be able to get kind of a general vibe of what's going on backstage, even though he's not there, or is he relying on a, a malcontent, disenfranchised, you know, somebody that's probably on their way out or not very valuable on the roster to begin with, sharing that person's perspective because they're a miserable fuck? I would probably guess it's the latter, but it wasn't true. Hulk Hogan was one of the easiest going. He would talk to anybody. He hung out with everybody. He ate with everybody. He didn't isolate himself. He didn't carry himself like a big star. The opposite of that was true. So I didn't see anybody that wasn't genuinely excited to interact with Hulk Hogan. Now, Somebody may say to me, well, of course that's the way they acted because, you know, they don't want anybody to dislike them or they don't want to get any heat. So they pretended to like Hulk Hogan, I guess, maybe, but 
you can see through that kind of garbage pretty easily. You know, I could see how excited people were to talk to Hulk Hogan and get his opinions of their finish or get their opinions of a way to lay out a match or just to talk about wrestling in general. He was always surrounded by people that that wanted to hang with him and, and, and talk to him, whether it was about their matches or about the business in general or just about life. He was one of the more sociable people backstage in that regard, and he didn't carry himself like a like he probably should have. So I don't, I don't buy any of it. I, do I believe that, you know, one of Dave's quote unquote sources, um, wanted to feed that information to Dave because look and everything that you read to me, if there is not some underlying shot at Eric Bischoff or Hulk Hogan in one way, shape or form to start the exposition, I'd be shocked as it was in this case, he started out that whole fucking word soup that I had a hard time even following you trying to listen to it and understanding who was saying what. I mean, it was so poorly written. This guy needs to learn how to fucking write a sentence, commas, periods, you know, just general grammar would be really helpful. But regardless of however poorly he writes, um, he starts off with his agenda first. And in this case, it's, yeah, generally most people don't like Hulk Hogan. He's backstage. He's just there. He's making too much money. Blah, 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 blah. That's, that's always how he starts everything off. He's got his agenda, whether it's Hulk or me or somebody else that he's got, you know, who's on his shit list. He always starts off burying whoever it is he feels needs, he needs to bury to set the tone for what he's about to write. Now, the shit that, that Rob, the stuff that Rob said, meh. I don't necessarily disagree with it. It's hard to hear, right? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to admit when you're when you're a big fish in a little pond. You may be that biggest fish in that little two acre pond, but once you're done eating up all the little fish, you got to find a bigger pond, right? Or you're just gonna die. You're either in television. You're either growing your audience or you're dying. And, and, and sometimes if you just kind of hold steady, you can hang on and hope, you know, maybe something's going to turn around in the case of COVID. I don't think anybody expects anybody's numbers to go up anytime in the near future until things go back to normal. So we're in this weird era right now, but generally speaking, pre COVID, if you're in the television business and your numbers aren't increasing year over year, you're backing up and you're, it won't be long before you go away. That's just the nature of television. It's a very competitive world. And in TNA's case, you know, Spike wanted them to be bigger. Spike Spike was the one that advocated bringing in a lot of this talent, which is why they paid for a lot of that talent, not TNA, because they wanted to grow the business, not just hold on to that little, you know, 1.5 or 1.8 or 1.1 million people that were, you know, tuning into to TNA at the time. And that sounds like a big number in t- today's world. And it would be in today's world. But back then, when you're drawing a million, million five, million seven, you're kind of in prime time on a major cable outlet. That's not a good number. It wasn't then. It would be now, but it wasn't then. So Spike wanted to grow that audience. And yes, you, as we talked about, you have to bring in bigger nationally recognized outside of your core audience kind of talent in order to do that. Is that going to rub some of the homegrown talent the wrong way? Sure it is. Everybody's got an ego. People have pride. 
They have their own sense of self-worth. Wouldn't it be hard if I was one of those younger talents that had been in TNA and, uh, and busting my ass and hoping to get that big break to see somebody like Rob Van Dam come in and make a lot more money and get a lot more attention and a lot more TV time? Sure, I'm going to be disappointed about that. And if I'm an insecure um, person, then I'm, I'm going to be more than disappointed. I'm going to be angry. You know, if I'm really a piece of shit, I'm going to not only be disappointed and angry, I'm going to call Dave Meltzer and whine about it so I can watch Dave Meltzer write about it. And that's probably what happened here. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about uh, a couple of moves that are happening behind the scenes. The Dudley's contracts are about to expire. How are they to deal with in TNA? We haven't spent a lot of time talking about Bubba Ray and Devon. God, they're the best. I love them both. I had so much, you know, and I got to know them in WWE, so it wasn't like I discovered them, you know, in TNA. But um, I think the, there were two moments, two points that I remember. I mean, they were they were significant to me and maybe insignificant to, to Bubba and Devon. But one of the first ones, we were in Pittsburgh for, for WWE, and it was either, it had to have been after the show, because we didn't get in a day earlier, unless it was a pay-per-view. I, I can't remember what the event was, but whatever. It doesn't matter. Bubba and I and Devon had gone out. And there might have been a couple other people there. Jason might have been with us, Jason Hervey. And we went out and hit, hit a little bar, restaurant. You know, it was earlier in the evening. It wasn't a late night thing. It's earlier in the evening. And I, I, I bought Bubba, I don't know, I must have bought him a Patron Silver, I think it, what it was. He had never had it before. And at that period of time, I was, I really liked Patron Silver because it went down nice and smooth and didn't fill me up and all that. Wait, I said, how, how had he not had Patron Silver by 2010? How could he not have it? I don't know. I have to ask him. That's and it might not, it might've been something other than Patron Silver, but it was something that he had never had before. It might've been a good scotch. Cause I was, I was really digging really good scotches like Lagan Vula and a couple others at that time. So it might've been a scotch that I was drinking, whatever it was. And he really, really loved it. You know, that, that was a moment we just kind of hit it off and we still joke about it to this day over that, that, that round of drinks, we kind of went from being as associates and people that knew each other to started to become pretty good friends. And the other time was in the ECW, uh, reunion event that we did in WWE. I think we just covered that recently, or if we hadn't, I just watched it for some reason, but there was a finish in there where I was getting, oh no, it was on social media. It was all over the place on social. Somebody reposted the finish of that match where I was getting bounced around by the entire former ECW crew in the ring. And I don't remember what the original finish was, but I said to Bubba, I said, no, man, you got to drag me outside of this building and throw me into a dumpster. That's what people are going to want to see. And he said, are you kidding me? Would you do that? I said, fuck yeah, I'll do that. Let's go. Now, and, they wouldn't even clean the dumpster. We didn't know we were going to do it beforehand. You know, when I got thrown in the garbage truck, which was my idea. Again. No, that was, no, that wasn't my idea. It was my idea to have Vince throw me in a garbage truck, not John Cena. Right. But at the ECW event, that was the first time I'd ever gotten thrown into a dumpster and nobody thought to clean the thing out and sterilize it. So, I mean, it was a shoot dumpster in the alley. <laughs> it wasn't a gimmick dumpster. And I think at that point, Bubba and Devon says, you know what, this guy, he, 
gives 100%. And that just changed our relationship. And we became really good friends from, from that point on. And then when I got to TNA and, and, and Bub and Devon, you know, were part of TNA, it just kind of grew from there. And I know on TV meetings, you know, we had production meetings before every show. And there was, you know, probably 10 or 12 people in that room. And Bubba w- was one of them. Uh, Taz was one of them. Um, quite a few. Hulk was almost always there. Myself, Jason Hervey, Dixie was almost always there. Terry Taylor was there. A um, couple others that were part of that production meeting. But it was generally Bubba and I. You know, that we're driving the majority of it. And I love Bubba's thinking. I love this psychology, you know, then as I do now. I, I have Bubba's one of the talents that I hold in the highest regard in terms of his vision and psychology and perspective on the business. I really dig him. Always have. Let's uh let's talk about some other names. Homicide is released due to budget concerns, according to Meltzer. What do you think of homicide? He was always one of my favorites to watch, but it doesn't feel like he ever connected with the national audience as well as I would have guessed he would have based on performances I saw from him and ring of honor. You know, I only interacted with him for a brief period of time and it, 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 it was indirect. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't direct him. I didn't produce him. I didn't lay out his storylines. So any contact that I had with him would have been incremental um, and almost casual. So I, I got along. I thought he was a great kid. He was quiet, um, a little bit of an introvert, which I identified with. It's probably why I got along with him a little bit when I did. We'd sit down and eat lunch together or whatever and catering and chat, but it never was never anything beyond that. What about Tomco? Tomco is also going to get released. Tomco, of course, had a, a run with WWE prior to this. It doesn't feel like he ever got really going too much with TNA. Why do you think that was? God, I, I barely even remember him being there. Um, Tyson Tomko, it certainly didn't leave a big impression on me. And I, I don't mean that to be critical of him at all. Uh, but I just, he must have been in and out pretty quick. Well, we've ever talked about this before, but I grew up with parents who smoked. And as a result, I absolutely hated cigarette smoke, but I saw firsthand how hard it could be to quit. I get it. Lucy nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. We should mention that this was researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has gone out and created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has allogens with four milligrams of nicotine in their cherry ice flavor. So here's the deal. Each and every flavor actually tastes great, but it's convenient and it's discreet. These products can be enjoyed anywhere on flights, at work, on the go, hell, even at the gym. And this is something that has been a game changer for someone in my life. I won't add them here on the show, <clears throat> but he's been trying to give up smoking for a long time. And we had a long conversation because believe it or not, my wife once upon a time was a smoker, but he needs a little help. It's harder for him than he imagined. And I get that. So my parents struggle with, it. he's tried Lucy hasn't looked back. 
if you've tried this, I'm telling you, there's no looking back. Now he loves the cinnamon and I've been told the wintergreen is pretty legit. But what I'd like for you to do is just try it. If you're a smoker and you're serious about taking better control of your health, saving some money and you know, not stinking, this doesn't get any easier. It's 2020. Get rid of the cigarettes, unplug your stupid vape, throw out your dip, get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenge. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple. You don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down and 83 weeks. Listeners can go to lucy.co and use promo code 83 weeks to get 20% off all their products, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use promo code 83 weeks at checkout. And I also have to give this disclaimer warning. This product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, which you already knew that, or you would have already quit smoking. Lucy.co is the place to be. Make sure you use that promo code 83 weeks. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about, um, the storyline. You're going to come on TV and address the whole RVD situation. And you're going to say that RVD was hurt worse than expected. He's being held together by stitches, staples, and pins. He needed 117 stitches after the attack. He's also had some organs punctured. He's got head trauma, but if he's ever able to come back, you would welcome him back, but the show must go on. So there's a new tournament for the world title. I don't know. It just feels like we could have just fucking beat him. <laughs> uh, what do you think of this? Hey, uh, just go say he had some head trauma and punctured organs. While not ideal, I, I think TNA did the best they can with what they had at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. In hindsight, could it have been done better? Would it have been better to just beat RVD and then bring him back and have him come back for another shot at a title? That's arguably, that's a good idea. Could have worked. I, I can't tell you why that decision wasn't made. I wasn't a part of that decision necessarily. Um, I might've had some input in it if I was asked as a consultant in, in a way, but I, I, I don't remember that ever happening. Um, but I, I, I don't think the decision was that bad of a decision given the circumstances. Uh, we got a couple more things we want to cover before we get to the show. Sting and Kevin Nash are going to come to the ring for a promo. It's mostly Nash saying how much he respects Sting. And then Nash started talking about how people think he's a cancer and he's only out for the money. But the reason he's there is because he still loves the business. And he says that those folks want him to step aside and let the younger talent get over. But he said they would have to take his spot. And Meltzer says that stuff in the body of a wrestling show where everyone talks about their push and basically makes it like the promoter decides everything is just groan inducing. Plus it buries the new guys because it tells you that they're being handed a spotlight in front of guys who were bigger stars. The idea should be the older talent should put the younger talent over, but not be the cool guys who were being screwed by management simply for being old. Nash said he's going to tell everybody what really goes on backstage. And then Jeff Jarrett comes out and well, it just goes from there. 
what do you think about this? You mean you haven't really talked about this a whole lot where you sort of acknowledge on TV in the middle of the ring that, well, here's how things really work. And I know that you always like the, the controversy aspect of a, of a program, but is that too inside? Does that hurt the product and your suspension of disbelief? I think it can. And I'm, as you're asking me this, I'm <clears throat> trying to reflect on, on what we see today. You know, I think to a degree, and I can't give you a good example right now off the top of my head, which is why I'm hesitating to say what I'm about to say. But I think we still see elements of that type of storytelling today. Um, and I, I do think, I think it's a weak element or premise. I think it's a weak premise of a story. It's if you're using that as a foundation to build upon as a story, I think it's really, really weak. It's it, 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 it is too inside baseball because you're asking people to start thinking and not feeling right. That's the best way to say it. You know, the minute your wrestling audience is starting to go, well, wait a minute, but if that's true, what if, well, what about this? Well, what about that? If you're analyzing the product, you're not feeling the product. And I think that type of conversation, that type of presentation, that type of story element, however big or small, tends to make people think rather than feel. And you're probably starting out in a hole if that's the case. Did that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Wasn't sure. The words were forming in my head, but not making it to my mouth. So I just want to make sure. Let's talk about an angle that happens on TV here that it just, I don't know. can't believe it happened. The angle happens on August 26th. As we march towards the September 5th pay-per-view, the show opens with Dixie Carter complete with her own video and entrance music. She's coming out to ring and, uh, she's going to call out Rick Flair. Flair's going to come out and tell her that she's drop dead gorgeous. And then Dixie gives a speech about how she's excited to bring Flair to TNA to be a locker room leader, but he just wound up being a disgusting, cowardly, pathetic human. And then Dixie suspends Flair for 90 days because of all these attacks that fortune has, has done on TNA and well, all the havoc they've wreaked. And then Flair says, maybe we should just go to a hotel room and take care of business there and not in front of the people. And then as Flair's getting mad about being suspended. Serge Salinas hits the ring. Nobody in the crowd knows what's going on. Although immediately on TV, it's mentioned. This is Dixie's husband and fortune tackles him. And before he could get to flair and then, you know, Robert rude puts the boots to him and Meltzer says, this is where it got stupid. Okay. I can understand the idea that flair's hitting on his wife and then acting like he's going to do something. So the husband hits the ring. But it should have been played off like this wasn't a typical wrestling angle. The heels holding him down was okay, but Rude putting the boots to him ruined it. Why do it? Is Serge going to wrestle Flair and the winner gets Dixie? I mean, Flair's carried people in his day, but nobody wants to see that. Do it to project realism. Sure, I get it. But if that's the case, how is Rude not immediately suspended or fired, even if Hogan comes out and reverses it later? I mean, it's Dixie's husband that some wrestler's stomping on. And if you don't want to do that, you can at least make a point of saying that Serge was at fault because he crossed the line by entering the ring. 
Instead, like usual, TNA had happened and was ignored for the rest of the show. Flair took off his belt and was about to start whipping surge when Hogan's music started playing. And then Flair stopped in his tracks, even though it took Hogan a while to get to the ring. He came out with Anderson, Angle, Hardy, and Pope, and they had a face off. And Hogan announced he was reinstating Flair. And normally I'd say that makes no sense. But Hogan explained he's got 50% power and Cardi has 50% power. So he is overruling Dixie. Don't ask. The point of this is it'll all come out of the master plan when Hogan turns heel and tries to steal the company from Dixie, which is also why they're pushing Carter as the owner so hard right now. I think that's the idea that they're building towards Carter versus Hogan. And, uh, yeah, this is a weird angle, but it's even weirder that a, we've got Dixie coming out with her own theme music and a video Tron and she gets her own entrance. It's even weirder when her husband slides in. Also weird that Flair's trying to hit on the whole thing's weird. Is this Dixie saying, what can we get Surge to do on the show? Or does somebody come to Dixie and pitch the idea thinking, oh, I'm going to curry favor with the boss and we'll get, we'll tell her she's gorgeous and have Flair hit on her. And that'll, that'll schmooze her. Oh, and then her husband can make the save. They'll love that. I, I got vertigo about. 45 seconds into what you said, Dave wrote. I mean, I, I just, I had a hard time following it. So maybe it made more sense to you than me. Um, and it's hard to comment on things that are so vertigo inducing. So I'll just kind of back up what I think the commentary there was. Um, who's uh, the question was, whose idea did somebody just come to Dixie and, well, what, is Dixie, what was the question? Was Dixie I, I mean, I'm over? really confused by that whole thing. I, honestly, God, when you go into that much discussion about what Dave Meltzer said, I, it, it's hard to follow. And maybe it's just me. Maybe he's really a really good writer and everybody else right. can understand well, this shit. But well, when you read it to me, I literally almost, I get so dizzy, I almost fall off my chair. Let's pretend for a minute that didn't happen then. Let me start over. Why does Dixie have her own theme music entrance video? Why is she so front and center on TV? Why is Flair calling her drop dead gorgeous and saying he wants to take her to the hotel okay, let's room? Okay, let's stop right there. Because okay, there's two questions going on right there. So let's just take them one at a time. Why is Dixie on TV? Because Vince Russo convinced her she should be on TV. And Russo did that because he knew she deep down inside wanted to be. So he was serving, he was servicing his client. Careful how anybody takes that. Servicing as a client, servicing a client or servicing your boss is what you do when you work for somebody. So Russo sensed, knew, understood that Dixie really wanted to be on television more. She wanted to be recognized as the female Vince McMahon. That was a that was a big driver for her. It's probably one of the reasons she got into the wrestling business in the beginning, though she would never admit it to herself at the time. So rather than fight it, he encouraged it which endeared him to her to a large degree because um, he was telling her something she wanted to hear anyway. So that answers the question as to why. This, and, and look, we can be critical of it all we want. We can put on our Dave Meltzer shoes and wear our little fucked up pants that we bought at the Gap 15 years ago that we wear every day, and we can all you know wag our tongues and look like an insane person and, and imitate Dave Meltzer and just be critical of everything because yeah, that's how I get people to, to read my shit. But you know, let's take another, let's take another perspective on that. 
Dixie Carter was the owner of the company. Owners of the company, authority figures, whether it was Eric Bischoff who did it first, Vince McMahon who followed my lead about a year later in 1997, early 1998, whenever it was. Um, that kind of authority figure, owner of the company, head of the you know the, the National Football League, whether you're the commissioner or you're the head coach, there's always some kind of authority figure in the world of sports that that become controversial and become a part of the story. Like Jerry Jones has been a part of the Dallas Cowboys stories longer than any quarterback they've ever had. It's just the way it is, folks. It's the model. It's human nature. It's what we kind of all expect in one way, shape, or form in this weird little world called sports entertainment. And Dixie was taking advantage of it. And 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 and, and again, it was Russo who propped that up with her, but I'm not so sure it was the worst idea in the world either. Now, as far as Rick, that was Rick's character, for God's sake. He was a womanizer. They built an entire career off of it. You know, Space Mountain, woo! I mean, come on. It was natural for a, a, a Ric Flair heel character to take that perspective with Dixie as a character um, in a story. It was consistent with who Rick's character was at the time. Dixie was an attractive you know, woman in a power position in wrestling. Why is that so odd for anybody to understand? Or no, maybe people understood it. Maybe they just didn't like it. That's a different subject, but it, it, it shouldn't, it just doesn't strike me as that odd, but Dixie got her entrance music. Dixie, Dixie, Dixie was becoming a character in the show, just like anybody else. Why wouldn't you give her entrance music? Why wouldn't you want to prop her up? Why wouldn't you want to try to get her over? Why wouldn't you want to give her all the things that you would give anybody else who you were trying to get over in that position? Why would she be any different than Eric Bischoff when he was when he was running WCW and a part of the NWO? Why did I get entrance music? Because I was a character in a freaking show. Because I was a part of the storyline. Why did Vince McMahon get his... Uh, his we, entrance music we get that. and, and walk just, out like he had a, like he's got a cucumber stuck up his ass because he's a character on the show. So that's why she did it. And I think Rick was consistent with the character that he was portraying at the time. Now, if we segue into why the surge surge thing, yeah, it could have been done better. And in hindsight, yes, you might be able to pick it apart and analyze it to, to to, to a point where you can make a justification for your position that it was a bad idea because Robert Roode was putting the boots to him. Yeah, you could do that. And you're, you're probably going to be right. But the emotion, if, you, if, if you're presenting that in an analytical way and people start thinking about it, yes, they'll agree with you. But when we did it, the reaction from the people in the in the venue, I was almost called it an arena. It was a soundstage. The reaction of people that were there, the reaction of people that were home, it all made sense. Here was a guy, just on the surface. You don't have to read. You don't have to go Freudian on it. It's a real simple thing. Here's a guy who's sitting at ringside because his wife was running a wrestling company, and he's there to support her. And Ric Flair comes in and, and and says things that are offensive and 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 disrespectful to her, and he can't take it anymore. So he jumps in the ring. To, to protect his wife or to, or to stand up for his wife and Ric Flair's goons beat the shit out of him. Why is that so freaking hard to understand? Why is that sub such an absurd scene? It's not unless you want it to be. 
SaveWithConrad.com makes saving money fast and easy, but don't take my word for it. Last Carl right there in Michigan. He writes, I want to say big thank you to Derek Jones, who was super responsive and informative. Not only did we save more than $100,000 on our mortgage by removing several years off of it, he also saved us a few months of payments. In follow-up, Conrad and Steve were super helpful when I had additional questions. You can't go wrong here with Save with Conrad. Definitely worth a call to understand what your savings could be. Carl gave us a five-star review, and as you heard, save more than $100,000. How much can you save? Find out right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh, by the way, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. If we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. We're licensed in more than 40 states, and even credit scores in the 500s will qualify. So what are you waiting for? Go to SaveWithConrad.com right now. I just think a lot of people grew tired of the the owner angle, you know. Obviously. Well, that's, an, that's another conversation, Conrad. I absolutely agree with you. Let's move on. That's another, but it's another conversation. I'm not arguing now that. We're talking about now, now we're talking about authority figures in general versus this particular scene and the way it was dissected and present, presented by Dave Meltzer. Two separate conversations. We've got a match here with Kevin Nash and Jeff Jarrett on TV. Nash is going to use a choke slam, but there's a ref bump. Then Jarrett sends Nash into the steel and uh, uses the stroke. Sting runs in wearing NWO Wolfpack paint which is even pointed out by the announcers and he uses a bat shot on Kevin Nash's gut or on Jarrett rather to allow Nash to win. And sting then continues to choke Jarrett with the bat. You're going to come out and start insulting sting saying, Oh, it shows how far you've fallen to use the bat sting is screaming for Hogan. And you're saying Hogan's busy. And then all of a sudden Hogan comes from the other side and uses a chair shot on stings back. And Meltzer says it was all in slow motion, but that continues to build to where we're, where we're going here. We'll do one more thing before we jump into the pay-per-view. And this is a big one. I'm sure we're going to do a whole long, deep dive on this one day. This is directly from the observer, Jeff Jarrett, 43 and Karen Smedley angle 37 were married on August 21st at a small ceremony that few people even knew about the only people in TNA that found out were because Karen more than a week later posted photos from the wedding. The two have been living together and raising their combined five children, three from Jeff's first marriage to the late Jill Jarrett and two from Karen's marriage to Kurt angle. What a fucking weird situation. Uh, when you find out that, Hey, they're not just together. Now they're married. Does that feel like closure or is it still just as weird as ever? I didn't think about it much. I, mean, I just—I've never been one that uh, spent too much time thinking about other people's relationships, right? And what's right or what's wrong. It was certainly unique, especially since Kurt was still in the company. But um, I, and I was aware of how um, awkward the situation either was or may have been. I didn't see it. You know what I mean? When, when, when everybody was backstage, when Karen was there and Jeff was there and Kurt was there and kids were there, I mean, they got along like, you know, extended family. There was, so since there was no real 
issue within their family that I could see, not that I would judge it one way or the other anyway, but again, when they were all together, because Karen would often come backstage and, and bring the kids and she'd be with Jeff and Kurt was there and Kurt's, you know, soon to be wife would end. I mean, everybody got along. So I probably didn't spend a total of 30 seconds thinking about it. I can't imagine being Kurt Angle or Jeff Jarrett when you know you're going to have to face the music knowing that. Pretty much whatever Kurt Angle wants to do, he can do. Yeah, it, you know, and I, 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 I heard stories, and uh, and I, I never believed, I never bought into anything that I was that I heard, you know. And I'm, and I guess that's one of the reasons that I get so volatile and bombastic when I hear people commenting on things that they know nothing about, or right. they weren't there, or they didn't see it with their own eyes, and they're relying on stooges and scumbags and pieces of shit to feed them information. It's probably the reason that in my own life, I don't judge. Right. I, first of all, <laughs> I've done enough stupid shit in my own life that I, I know better. Um, but I don't, I, I didn't believe the stories. I didn't disbelieve them. I just didn't, I would let them go in one ear and out the other. And I honest to God, wouldn't think about them for more than a few seconds. And I would be onto something else. But I will say, um, if I, I can't imagine being in that situation, I would be awkward anyway, sure. you know, to, to end up, you know, regardless of w whether Kurt Angle was the baddest man on the planet or whether he was an accountant, you know, at the food distributorship that you happen to be an employee at anytime you're working in the same environment with someone and you have that kind of, you know, thing going on in your personal life, it's going to be awkward. Now, would it be more awkward if, guy who happened to be a gold medal, medal winner in wrestling and one of the baddest guys on two feet. Yeah, I'd be fucked up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't think about it. I, I didn't. I mean, I, and a lot has changed in the last 10 years. You know, I've gotten to know Jeff better. Um, and Jeff has changed. You know, Jeff is, he quit drinking. Um, he, he got a hold of his life. He's, he's embraced his faith and lives it. Not doesn't just talk about it. In fact, he doesn't talk about it much. He just lives it. Um, and I, I have a lot of respect for Jeff and for Karen and for Kurt. And I think they've done a wonderful job under the circumstances, keeping their, their families together as individual families and together as a, as a broader, you know, two family kind of scenario. They've, they've kept it together in a way that I think is probably more admirable than most people are capable of doing. Yeah. So man. I, I have nothing negative to say about it. Nothing. I, I respect them all. I don't think there's two more interesting guys in wrestling than Kurt Angle and Jeff Jarrett. I mean, their stories are maybe two of the most unique stories ever. And it's funny how, or interesting rather, eventually their lives sort of intersect. Let's talk about the pay-per-view. We're finally here. Lots of stalling to get here. Lots of news and notes, lots of context, but TNA no surrender 2010, the readers of the wrestling observer gave it 67.1% thumbs up 7.9% thumbs down 25% thumbs in the middle. We'll get your take at the end of the show. Um, we should remind you we're, we're one month out from bound for glory. That's going down on 10, 10, 10, which is kind of cool. Uh, the first match, as you mentioned. It's Chris Saban and Alex Shelley retaining their TNA tag titles, beating Jeremy and Max Buck in 12 minutes and 50 seconds. So this is the Motor City Machine Guns retaining over Generation Me. Meltzer would say, good way to start the show. 
a lot of unique spots ending with skull and bones on Jeremy for the pin. After the match, Generation Me jumped the guns with them doing a double team DDT on the apron on Shelly. The crowd, which did not boo Generation Me during the match, immediately picked up on it as a heel turn while Jeremy laughed at him when it was over. Tanae and Taz tried to push Generation Me as spoiled kids who have a sense of entitlement, and they also sold the idea that Alex Shelley was working with a neck injury. Three stars. You saw this one for the first time in a long time and, and said earlier you were blown away with this. Absolutely loved this match. And I mean, wow, what a what a glimpse into the future this match was, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is really, really good. I think the thing, aside from just the sheer athleticism and the timing and the precision and all of the things that I, I just watched a couple hours ago between Gen Me and Motor City, I mean, they were equal. I mean, they were just all four of the talents were just so good. They were doing very high risk stuff, very fast paced, but everything they did with the exception of one or two, almost if you're a, if you're just a view, if you're not analyzing it, you're not trying to you know pick it apart, you would never even notice it. There was a couple, couple misses, you know, technically, but they were so small that, like I said, most people wouldn't recognize them. I would say 99.5% of the match was so fast-paced, so precise, believable, and exciting to watch because there were so many things that we hadn't seen before at that point. Um, the thing that I really liked about it the most, though, was the pace. You know, the match started out, well, you know, the first couple minutes, and I was going to time it, but I have to watch, whenever I watch Impact stuff, I have to watch it on my iPad for whatever reason. I can't download the app on my uh, computer, my desktop. So I have to watch it on my iPad. My iPad doesn't give me the ability to time code as like as much as I'd like. So, um, I don't know how long the match was, but I, I'm going to say just for an example, if the match was 10 minutes, I don't know what it was. Could have been eight, could have been 14. I don't know. But if it was 10 minutes, one of the things that I look for when I, when I go back and rewatch shows like this is, you know, wh wh where's, where's the three acts, where's the three acts in the show. Where is the three acts within the matches themselves? So again, just the way I like to try to analyze story. And I'm watching this match, and I'm, and again, if it was ten minutes, it was ten minutes, whatever it was. In that case, you would, I, I would assume, I would look for and hope to see at least the first three minutes of that match, the first act, if you will, setting up what the finish is going to be. Starting to establish the this, this psychology, the relationship between the characters, starting to get a sense of who's the heel, who's the baby face, beginning by the second act, which would start at, you know, in about three minutes and one second and carry us through the next three or four minutes. Second acts are usually a little longer where the, the, the team that you're rooting for, the individual in, in some cases that you're rooting for or hoping is going to win is now in some kind of real trouble. And it doesn't look like that's going to be possible. And now your, your baby face, your protagonist, the good guy, whatever you want to call it, has to find a way to overcome. And you get to the point where it just doesn't look like it's possible until it becomes possible and, and your hero overcomes or doesn't, in which case that story is going to continue until he or she does. So I was looking for that kind of structure in this match and it wasn't apparent to me right away because I didn't know what the backstory was here. I didn't know there was going to be a heel turn at the end 
until I saw it, right? So as I'm starting to watch it, I'm going, okay, well, the first act is a little weird because here are these two teams, which I had seen before, and I expect so much of this high-flying, athletic, aerial, kind of innovative, never-seen-before kind of offense. Um, and instead, I get a lesson in chain wrestling. <laughs> and, and oh, well, that's weird. And and it, and I don't want to say I didn't like it. It just was noticeably unexpected in this kind of a match. I didn't expect this match to start out this way. So I wasn't sure this morning how I was going to feel about it. And then it started to slowly build. And then by the second act, now I'm seeing more of the action that I would expect to see out of these four. And it started really developing. But about the end of that second act, now a little more than halfway through the match, I'm starting to see attitude with with Jen Me. I almost called him the Young Bucks. But with, with Jen Me, now I'm starting to get eh, a little bit of a tip of the hat here that this is starting to escalate. And I love that. That's what I love. That's what, when I get off watching wrestling, that's what gets me off. That kind of psychology, that kind of structure, a story within the match. It keeps me interested in where's this match going to go, just like a car chase would if I was watching a, you know, an action film. You know, I want to see how that's going to end. You know, and I, I felt the same same way here. I I really really dug it. The only negative. And it's not a negative. It's just an observation is I don't think you could sell Jen me 10 years ago or today. I don't think you could sell those two guys as heels. And you just can't. First of all, they're too, they're too damn cute. <laughs> they were 10 years ago. At least they're good looking young kids. They're colorful and they're able to go out and do things that everybody wishes they could do. Kind of hard to get them over as heels. And I understand it. I was probably a part of it. I, I probably either chimed in and said, wow, that's great. Or I could have even been more involved in it than that. I don't know. Um, the only thing I, and it's again, not a negative is man trying to sell them. Gen me as heels. Mm, I man, talk about swimming upstream. It just goes against the laws of fucking nature. Yeah. Especially knowing what we know now about them. I mean, I think, you look at the young bucks now and I don't know, it's just hard to imagine them as bad guys. Let's talk about the next match. It's Douglas Williams pinning Sabu in 1113 to retain the X title. Uh, Sabu is going to go for a springboard dive. He's going to lose his balance on the top rope and fall into the ring. And then he's just going to dive over the top, putting Williams on the table. Uh, Williams moved and Sabu goes through the table. Williams grabs the chair, but Hebner stops him. Turns his back to throw the chair out of the ring. And then Williams grabs the X title belt, nails Sabu and gets the pin two and a quarter stars. What do you remember this one? We both admit that we're uh, big fans of Doug Williams, Sabu, obviously an innovator years before, uh, still probably, uh, selling tickets and moving the needle, but maybe not quite the performer he used to be. Maybe slowing down a step here. what do you think of the match and, and talk to us a little bit about Sabu. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about him with you. Uh, and I appreciate that very much. <laughs> um, first of all, this being an X division match, and, and I guess I shouldn't have been disappointed when I saw this because that was always my biggest bitch with the X division is what the fuck is it? 
Can somebody describe me why the X Division is different than any other match you're about to see for the next two hours? And nobody could ever come up with an answer. Oh, yeah, well, there's different rules. The rules are the own rules. Okay, well, that's coming up next <laughs> in a Falls Count Anywhere match. So, again, what is an X Division match? I mean, I had those conversations almost every week. And I, I, I would purpose, purposely always ask the question knowing I was never going to get an answer, just hoping that eventually somebody on the other end might say, you know, we should probably come up with an answer next week because he's going to ask us to define the X Division. And if we can't, he's going to laugh at us in front of everybody. So let's make something up. And they never did. It made no sense. There was nothing. There was, first of all, not knowing what the X division is supposed to be. I guess I shouldn't have any expectations, but certainly seeing this match representing an X division match really, really confused me. This was ass ugly. I don't care what Sabu did in the past, not taking anything away from that, but it certainly wasn't represented here. He was the shits. This was ass ugly wrestling. Doug Williams is he was a phenomenal performer and capable of doing a lot. He just couldn't find the chemistry. That, well, there was no chemistry to find between him and Sabu. And Sabu looked rough as shit. He was missing spots. He was slow. He bumped like he just got into the business a week ago. I just, ugh, it was horrible. So I didn't know you hated Sabu that much. I don't hate Sabu. I hate this match. I don't mind taking anything away from what he accomplished previous to this. You said it to yourself years ago. He was an innovator and I respect the hell out of that. I don't dislike Sabu. I don't even know Sabu. I mean, I've met him, but I don't know him enough to dislike him or like him. Um, you asked me what I felt about this match and the match sucked for a lot of reasons. And a good portion of them <laughs> was Sabu. I mean, go back and look at it, you know, impact app. Impact Plus, whatever it's called, look at it. You tell me if he was if he bumped. You tell me if he sold well for his opponent. You tell me if he did anything to make his opponent look good. If he if, if he did and I missed it, please you know e hit me on Twitter at e Bischoff and tell me what parts of that match that you saw that you liked and you thought you know you, give me an example where you thought that Sabu did everything he could to make his opponent look great. If you come up with one, I'll take it and I'll apologize, but I don't think you can. He didn't do anything for Doug Williams and, and he hurt himself in the process because he wasn't able to bump like he used to be able to bump. And he's not the first, you know, talent to fall into that trap. Everybody keeps trying to do what they used to be able to do. And the older you get, the tougher it is to watch. I could say the same for Sting, and I love Sting. I, Steve Borden is a good friend of mine. Steve Borden here in this match that we're going to talk about later on wasn't bumping like Steve Borden from, you know, five or 10 years previous. And it, it looked bad and it hurt Steve or staying and it hurt his opponent. And this was the case here. It has nothing to do with how I feel about Sabu as an individual. It's just this match sucked. It should have never happened in the first place because Sabu and Williams weren't going to be able to have chemistry. Sabu was well past his prime and wasn't going to be able to represent the type of performer that he was three, four, five, ten years earlier. It was going to be a letdown. And then to make it all worse, they called it an X Division match, which absolutely made absolutely no sense whatsoever from from the get go. Before the bell ring, it didn't make before the bell rang, it didn't make any sense, and it only got worse as the minutes wore on. And that's really sad because Williams, dog, and I'm sure at some point in his career, Sabu was you know a, a great performer, but not here, not this night. 
Let's uh, let's talk about the next match. You want to talk about bad matches? How about Velvet Sky and Madison Rain? Velvet Sky gets the win with a DDT in four minutes and forty-two seconds. It gets a dud rating. Meltzer hated it all. Said it was really sloppy, and even though the angle was pushed on TV, nobody cared. Why didn't this connect with the audience? They are just dead here. Well, probably for a couple reasons. Um, one is there's no real story. Um, two is who's the you know go back. And I'm not challenging you, Connor, because I don't know if you went back and watched this or not. But if if you haven't, go back and watch this match, and tell me who's the heel and who's the babyface. Tell me why I should care. Who wins? Or am I just watching mud wrestling? And that's not to criticize the technical wrestling, although there was a lot there to be critical of. I'm not criticizing the actual wrestling. Am I just watching something for the sake of watching it? Am I watching hot girls beat the hell out of each other? Yep. Do I enjoy that? Nope. Did it make any sense? Nope. Did I care who won? Nope. Was it a waste of time? Yep. Selling was horrible. Oh, talk about bad selling. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Ooh, doggy. Let's keep it going. Abyss and Rhino, 12 minutes, 39 seconds, falls count anywhere match. It gets two stars. Uh, lots of big spots, including Janice, which he remembers the uh, barbed wire baseball bat. Named after Dixie's mother. And he's also got a nail board. Yes, a nail board is here on pay per view. Uh, Meltzer says match didn't have all that much heat, but at least it was not relying on the broken glass and thumbtacks because of the angle match. They couldn't bleed two stars. My goodness. This is the fourth match here on the card and we've got big gimmicks. Oh, you know, Chris Park, super guy, one of the nicest human beings you will ever meet and a very talented guy by the way. Um, Rhino, just dig him. He's just real, down-to-earth, honest guy. So these are two people that I think very highly of as individuals. This match was horrible. Just maybe it's me because I hate this kind of match. Maybe it's because I hated the Abyss character as much as I did. I just didn't like the character. It's why I created the Joseph Park character. It's why I made him an attorney because he's so talented and he's so capable and, and he, but he was fixated on being this abyss character and it just was never, ever going to be successful. It was a Kmart blue light special imitation undertaker gimmick and no one was ever going to buy it regardless of how good of a job you know, Chris Park did it portraying it. It just was never going to work. And on top of that, you know, these types of matches, yeah, the cute little attractions once in a while, but ugh, it was brutal. And not because the guys didn't work hard. They worked their asses off, but it just, it just didn't work. If you're a fan of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, you will love ad-free shows. Now, not only do you get the podcast early and ad-free, but you don't just get Eric, you get Bruce, you get Tony, you get JR, you get Arn, and tons of bonus audio, including Ask Lori Bischoff. That's right, but that's not all. Enjoy an exclusive clip from ad free shows of Eric Bischoff talking to David Arquette about the movie he just released this past weekend, You Can't Kill David Arquette, exclusively on adfreeshows.com. For one, it 
they didn't the fans didn't react the way sort of I thought they would. I thought in my head it was like I'm the first fan that had become a champion. Like a you know, as a kid, I was always like, oh, I'd love to be that. So that's how I looked at it when it was presented to me. It's like, oh, I'm gonna be the champion. Like this is gonna be exciting. I've always wanted to do this. This will be so much fun. So I didn't put all the pieces together because I I was looking at it from that angle. So I I, I thought the fans would be with me in we're all champions together, you know, but then it wasn't. And it was really the other side. And then it was like backstage too. And then at one point I asked Booker T, I was, it was like the second, first time I was going out as the champion and I was sitting there and Booker T was getting ready for his match. I said, Booker T, how many times have you been champion? He's like, never, I've never been the champion. Ooh, that, that's, what hit, that's what hit me, but I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, I'm literally like a fan. I'm going around with a little miniature belt I still have, getting them all to sign it. You know, that's what one of the reasons why uh, Russo was like, you know what? He's a fan. He, he loves wrestling. Like, it'd be great. Let's make him the champ. That was sort of something in his head after Shivani said it, I guess. But I was a fan. So that's what really hurt, that now – this thing I love hates me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like being in a bad marriage or something. So what are you waiting for? Sign up on adfreeshows.com today. There is a level for every budget and so much audio. We hear it again and again. It's almost impossible to keep up. See for yourself. Adfreeshows.com. Let's get to the next match. Jeff Jarrett is going to team with Samoa Joe to take on Kevin Nash and Sting. They're only going to go six minutes and 11 seconds. Meltzer says they kept it short, which was smart. Sting and Nash did about as well as they could, given that Sting has a bad shoulder and can't do much. And Nash has the bad knees and he can't do much. Um, it's sort of whatever for me. Sting goes for a stinger splash, but Jarrett hits him with the bat. Then he uses a second bat shot. Joe saw none of that grabs a choke on sting while Jarrett stops Nash from saving. And the announcers and Jarrett's body language sold it like it was a heel turn, even though it could just be considered retribution in the sense that Sting had used the bat on Jarrett umpteen times in the buildup for this. But Jarrett was acting like he was hiding something. The match was better than expected. Two stars. I don't know, man. This doesn't. It feels like going through the motions a little bit. It feels like a TV match. It doesn't feel like it's this big. You know, we've built it to a crescendo, and now this is the. This is the climax. This is the release. It doesn't feel that way to me. What say you? Listen to you using climax and release in a wrestling conversation. I'm starting to get nervous. Um, are we about to do a Bluetooth commercial? Oh, no, they're not with us this week. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were setting me up. <laughs> I had to look at my run sheet and go, do we have a Bluetooth commercial in here? Is this my cue? That's pretty fun. <laughs> um. Yeah, I feel the same way you do. Uh, you know, maybe if I went back and looked at the backstory and how this match was set up, I might feel differently. But again, throughout, I got one, two, three, four. I got four notes out of eight matches. Who's the baby face? Who's the heel? Same thing. And, yeah. and I'm saying it in a different way than Dave, you know, commented on it when he reported on it. But it's just like, eh, I'm just, I'm not sure I get it. I'm confused more than anything. I'm confused. Here's my emotion confused and and if if i'm confused that means i have to think about it to try to get unconfused and if i have to think about it that means i didn't dig it 
and that's right where I am with this one. We've uh, got to address the elephant in the room. Are there any issues with Kevin Nash and Samoa Joe working together here because of their past problems? I, I, I didn't, uh, uh, a, I don't know. And B, this is the first time I heard that they had past problems. What were the past problems? Samoa Joe went out and did a promo where he buried Scott Hall. And when Scott was, you know, having one of his struggles, uh, a bad spot in the road, if you will. And when he came back through the curtain, apparently Kevin Nash took that personally. And there was some physicality. Really? Yeah. When was that? Before this. Well, I know before this, but while I was there, like before 2009 or. I don't recall. Let's keep it moving. Uh, You know, the answer is, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but this is the first I've heard about it. So I'm kind of interested, actually. I've never heard of anybody having an issue with Samoa Joe. I'll send you some uh, links and whatnot. Other than Vince Vince Russo hated him. But um, I just shouldn't say hated him. He just didn't think he should ever be on television. Um, So I, I didn't know that there was that heat between them. And to my knowledge, there was no issue with them working together. I'll, I'll give you my impression. You know, Kevin's not one to hold a grudge. If he's pissed off at you, he's going to tell you about it. If he needs to do more than talk about it, he'll do more than talk about it. And when it's over, it's over and you move on. Yeah. I, I would guess that that was the case here. Let's, uh, let's go to the next match. It's AJ styles. And of all the opponents they could have, it's Tommy dreamer in an, I quit uh, match 16 minutes, 30 seconds. It gets three and a half stars. And Meltzer would say politically dreamer has to lose this match. There's so much negativity on Dixie Carter, bringing EV two amongst the wrestlers from the bottom to the top. The feeling is maybe the pay-per-view did good business, but the act was done at that point. Styles came back, got the fork and graphically stuck the fork in dreamers. eye. and dreamer said, I quit with dreamers entire gimmick being about not quitting. You really had to do some serious stuff here to actually make him quit. The idea is to borrow from the Magnum TA Tully Blanchard. I quit match from 85 and dreamer more than held up his end of the match here. Three and a half stars. You know, I mean, I guess it's cool to show a different side of AJ styles, but this is styles clash. And I'm not saying as a move or a sort of a pun here, but these guys could not be different in ring performers, but three and a half stars seems like a pretty good rating. For my taste, it was a little long at 16 and a half minutes. what do you think? You know, it's subjective. You know, Dave liked it and that's fine. It's his opinion. Uh, I, I, I value opinions, uh, or respect them. I should say it's just an opinion. Um, mine is, I didn't dig it. I just, eh, I didn't dig it and it had nothing to do with the talent's ability. It had nothing to do with how I felt about Tommy or, or, or AJ at the time, but I just watched it and I was disappointed. Actually, I don't know why I just didn't like it, which made me disappointed, I guess. Right. Maybe it's a kind of match. It was, I, I, the fork and the eye thing, it, and I've, you know, I'm not a squeamish person or I'm, 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 I'm not a soft type of person when it comes to, you know, violence and action. I just, I, I turned away from it, you know, mentally, not physically, but I, I just mentally kind of went, eh, okay. Some people dig this shit. I don't. And that's how I felt about it. it. Had nothing to do with AJ's ability. Had nothing to do with Tommy's ability. Had nothing to do with anything other than once again, this falls into the kind of 
extreme presentation for the sake of an extreme presentation, no pun intended there, um, with little or no real story that matters. Yeah, Tommy Dreamer had the reputation. He never says I quit. Okay, twelve people probably knew about that. Oh, and ten, and ten of them were working backstage. So, eh, okay, let's, let's go. Jeff Hardy, Kurt Angle, no contest. It's a semifinal of the TNA title tournament. They introduce Dixie Carter at ringside, which plays into the finish. Uh, but yeah, no contest. Uh, Meltzer would say the rest of the 20 was built around angle, grabbing the ankle lock. They're pushing the Hardy wouldn't quit because he's going to win the title for his friend, Rob Van Dam and Russo booking. That means the two are about to feud angle. Grapevine the leg Hardy was in the move for a totally ridiculous amount of time before the bell rang out of nowhere. And it was ruled a draw Bischoff came out and talked with Dixie and ordered five more minutes. Angle stomped on the ankle and kept working on it. Hardy gets the brief kit or gets a brief offense, goes to the top. Angle gives him an Olympic slam off the top for a near fall. We're back and forth and it looks like they're going to, uh, I don't know how I'll feel about this finish. They're trying to do, I guess, a, a WrestleMania 13 style spot where instead of it being a, a sharpshooter, it's a Boston crab. And Angle's selling it like he's going to pass out and his arm drops, but he held, he holds it up just as it looks like the ref's about to stop it. And then in a moment, he reverses out of the Boston crab and gets the ankle lock with 40 seconds left. He holds it for the rest of the time. Hardy doesn't tap time expires. And at that point you say, we need to look at the cut. They blipe, they wipe the blood off. Angle said he looks fine and he feels fine, but then. You guys claim he's, he's cut too badly to continue and they rule it. No contest. And Meltzer says with better booking, this would have been a match of the year candidate four and a quarter stars. I didn't like it nearly as much as he did. I just don't like the whole time limit draw thing. I hated the blood stoppage, but the actual match itself was pretty freaking good. Told a great story. What'd you think? It told a great story. I thought it told a phenomenal story. I loved it. And I loved it for all the reasons you didn't like it. I loved it even more. Okay. I, I love the blood stoppage and the answer should be obvious. Why? Because you don't see it because it doesn't usually happen because it's different because you can't predict it. And I, I loved it. I loved the match. I was invested in it emotionally watching it this morning at 5:45. I was invested in it before I even had my first pot of coffee. I was invested in this one. Um, I, I loved it and, and it'd be easier for me to comment on it. If I knew the, the backstory or had a, a sense of where this thing was going to go in detail because I, I, you know, I'm just looking at this as a, as a standalone match. Right. And there is a setup that, you know, that happened in the weeks before there is a, a follow-up that's going to happen, you know, in the future and looking at a match like this, you're really just looking at one piece of a 50 piece puzzle and trying to figure out what the puzzle is. You know, it's kind of hard when you're just looking at one piece of a story. Um, but the match itself, I thought was great. I, one of the most, for me, and just what I like, 
it's different than what you like, Conrad, different what Meltzer likes, or different what my wife would like or whatever. can't believe I mentioned my wife and Dave Meltzer in the same sentence, but it doesn't matter who. You know, we all like different things. I love this match. I really did. The perform, you know, Kurt and Jeff just – from a character performance point of view, they sold it. You could feel the emotion. You could feel the frustration. You could feel Kurt digging and digging and digging. He's so good at that. The working from underneath kind of character, the baby face working from underneath. My only you know, confusion here is who's the baby face, who's the heel. But that happens in a tournament type of format. That's one of the reasons why they're sometimes difficult. But, man, the match itself, from beginning to the middle to the end, you know, the swerve at the top of the third act with the blood, and then, oh, God, I just thought it was great. I, I, I'm going to go back and watch this one again. <laughs> That's how much I liked it, to be honest with you. Last match here, Mr. Anderson's going to pin Pope D'Angelo De Niro in 17 minutes and three seconds to win the other semifinal. And, uh, the crowd was spent after the last match, probably nothing. These two guys can do to top that. I don't know why they wouldn't have just let angle Hardy close the show. Maybe because, probably of, the because of the finish. Yeah. Right. I, honestly, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. It's rude, but I don't want to lose the opportunity to point this out. I thought the same thing as I'm watching the Kurt match, knowing <laughs> that Ken and Pope are coming up next. I'm thinking, God, those guys must've been in the back going, Oh please do we have to do this you know oh how do you follow that so i i agree with you on, on that point this is a horrible position for them to be in the match here is uh fine but it's hard to follow what we've just seen star in three quarters um anderson goes for the mic check pope doesn't take the bump right or anderson didn't do the move right either way it just looks awkward uh, as opposed to slick and dynamic, according to the observer, but they still use it for the finish. It's pretty hard to follow Kurt angle. It's pretty hard to follow Jeff Hardy. I don't know that this did it, but if this was anywhere else on the card, I think we all would have liked it a lot better. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, I would have loved to have not seen the Madison rain velvet Angelina love match and seeing this maybe in the middle of the card um and just have more time some other stuff but who i i agree you know the, and i think the reason I mean, i'm guessing i don't remember specifically but i think the reason is because of the nature of the finish in the kurt and jeff match that's just not how you want to leave a pay-per-view you want to have a finish you know definitive finish um but I, w I do want to talk about Ken and, and mostly Pope because I put Ken over a lot. And Ken's a great talent. He's great on the mic. Great on the mic. And a good guy. I like Ken a lot. Pope, I cannot figure out for the life of me why he did not go on to become a much bigger star. He's got movie star looks. Yep. His promos are phenomenal. Yep. He's He drips charisma. Yep. Um, I think as an in-ring performer, he could have been nurtured to the point where he could have been one of the best because he was so athletic and probably still is. I know him and my son Garrett are pretty tight, so I, I don't know what Pope's doing right now, but he was he was just a phenomenal athlete. Um, man, he was good on the mic. His character was so strong, and he was so good-looking. He got a great voice. 
I'm not sure where, where the disconnect was between him and the rest of the world, but he, he is probably one of the more underrated talents um, from this era out there. Really a remarkable performer. And it's hard to imagine that he didn't do more. You know, I mean, he had a, he had a run with the WWE and a run with TNA and it feels like he showed a lot of what he was capable of. And I don't know. It just didn't really happen for him the way we would have hoped. And he's still a young guy. He's only like 42 years old, but yeah, he could probably still go. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, has a great look in great shape and he finds himself on the outside looking in. I'm not saying this to have a whole new, different discussion, Eric. But do you think one of the things that hurt him is that they're just, I mean, historically in wrestling, we didn't push African-Americans as top guys. And I, and I know that that's a pretty controversial statement, but it's also factual. There just haven't been a lot of quote unquote, top African-American guys. Do you think that that glass ceiling existed 10 years ago and maybe hindered some of his upward mobility because it wasn't just what we've always done in wrestling? I, it's funny you asked that question. Cause I was thinking about that very thing. Cause I asked myself when, you know, I watched the show and then you and I kind of went back and forth, you know, before we got on to, to actually record this morning. Cause I had a couple of things I wanted to do and, and, and you had some things. And during that period of time, I was outside with my dog and I was thinking about what I had just seen. Cause I had just finished up watching this, the, this particular pay-per-view in order to prep for the show. And while I was outside, I was thinking to myself, why, why didn't Pope make it bigger right. than he did? Because there's no good reason for it. He had every element um, that you could hope to find in a talent. And I asked myself the same question you just asked me. You know, is it because it, was it just too easy to go? Oh no, no, because Ken Anderson was you know the guy, and he, he had more camera time in WWE, and you know, arguably he was a, you know, a better known talent. So that's where we're going to go. Was it that, or was subliminally or subconsciously, you know? Was there other thinking in, involved? And I, I look, Pope was was so well liked, and and I don't mean to suggest or imply that anybody, you know, was making decisions based on race because right. I don't think consciously people do. I think subconsciously sometimes that happens, maybe too often. But I I, I was out on the deck with my dog, asking myself the very question that I asked here moments ago: Why wasn't Pope a bigger star? And I don't have an answer other than perhaps the timing just wasn't right for him because of the fact that mm, nobody just saw him as the star. I don't know. Timing is the, sh- timing's the answer. I don't mean to cut t- you off, but timing has got to be the answer because we talk about this a lot with other really talented guys like Doug Williams here. Man, if Doug Williams was 10 years younger, what would he be doing on Wednesday nights right now? Like. There's a ton of guys who Steve Carino is the one that comes to mind most often. I think if Steve Carino came along 10 years later, my goodness, he would have been a much, much bigger star. And I think that's probably the answer for Pope, but giving everything that we've learned in recent years is we've all started to be, become a little more conscious and we see what was possible with Kofi last year. And now it feels like, well, Kofi's just doing tag stuff again. And I don't mean to dismiss being a great tag team performer. But like Kofi Mania was a thing there for a while and, and it could be again. And it makes me wonder, like, maybe that was just the right time. And 
maybe it will never be your time if you get out of the race car. And for that, I hope that Pope finds his place in wrestling again, and not just behind an announced desk, unless that's where he wants to be. But my goodness, he showed us in this show, man, he's got a lot more he can offer. And I don't know. I'd hate to think that anybody wasn't given an opportunity or it was decided for whatever reason it wasn't their time because of the color of their skin. That just feels weird. But you do run across certain characters where you're like, man, if they would have just put the rocket on that guy, he could have been huge. But we could say that about, you know, Caucasian performers too. But I don't know. This one stood out. I don't know, brother. Again, I I apologize for cutting you off, but just to support what you were saying, I don't know that you could say that about, uh, about Pope because there was nothing, there was nothing lacking in him. I I mean, there's a lot of great performers of, of all races that are great technically in the ring are good technically in the ring or better than most technically in the ring, but they can't carry a mic. They should never be allowed to Pope excelled on the mic. I mean, he was really, really good. It probably still is. And, and you know, and I was thinking, cause I forgot that he got to run in WWE. Well, why wouldn't he make him? Why wouldn't he make it in WWE? Right. And the only answer that I could have, and it's not an answer, but the only thing I would guess as to why he wouldn't have made it in WWE is, is, is Pope is a pretty laid back. And when I say laid back, I don't mean to suggest he doesn't work really hard, but he's not a, he doesn't push himself. He, he's, he's, he's not that guy. He's not a politicker. No, he's the, he's the opposite of that. He doesn't play politics. He doesn't, my experience, and I got to know Pope pretty good backstage. I mean, we did, you know, we became friends. And like I said, he's still friends with my son, Garrett, to this day. But he, he, he was not, he wasn't that politicker, man. He wasn't that guy that was going to go for the juggler. He was going to let his work speak for itself. He was going to let his mic work speak for itself. And, you know, wherever he ended up, he ended up. And, and, I, and I admire that in him because he stayed whole as a human being. He didn't sacrifice. He didn't compromise. He was true to who he really was. And he stayed that way. And I, you got to love someone like that. I mean, you got to respect someone like that. And for that, I give him credit. But I, that's the only, because I can't imagine anybody in WWE would look at Pope and go, no, he just doesn't have it. My God, he's got it in buckets, train car loads. But anyway, it's, it's unfortunate, but we should call Tony. You should call Tony. Say, Hey, got this guy should do some stuff with him. (laughs) You know, what's funny too. I think Pope lives in Jacksonville. Come on now. That's a sign. That's a sign. This show serves a purpose. You, Conrad Thompson, you have made more things happen in the world of professional wrestling across the board in WWE, in AEW. You've you've resurrected careers from the ashes into the prime time of their career. You have done amazing shit in the world of professional wrestling by virtue of the power of your podcast as the podfather, the purveyor of truth and entertainment. And now you have an opportunity to do one more really big thing. Call Tony. Thanks. Thanks for the pressure. I appreciate that. (laughs) My goodness. Well, listen, this was fun. You know, I know that I saw a couple of comments that said, I hate when you guys talk about TNA. Well, buddy, come on. 
We're doing 52 shows a year on the main feed. Plus Lord knows how many over at adfreeshows.com. We're going to cover all of Eric's career, but next week we're going way back. How about nine 11 95. I'm so pumped up about this because this isn't the first Monday nitro. This is the second one. And this is the first one that's head to head with Monday night raw. Do you even remember what the main event of that show was? Nope. Can't wait for us to talk about it. It's Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger on top, Randy Savage and Scott Norton sting and VK wall street, <laughs> Alex Wright and Sabu. Listen to you. <laughs> Giggling. <laughs> it's happening in Miami, Florida, September 11th, 1995. I can't believe it. We're going to be covering this right around unbelievably the 25 year anniversary of all of this happening, man, time flies. So go watch that old show, September 11th, 1995, that episode of nitro, and then join us back here next week. As a reminder, you get that show and you would have gotten this show early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. And we did our first like celebrity meet and greet over at adfreeshows.com this past week, Eric, we had uh, one half of the good brothers, one of the original founding members of the bullet club, uh, and multiple time WWE tag team champion, the former Luke gallows, Mr. Doc gallows, boy, you think they had, uh, some brother in me softly and some hoots all around or what? These guys are the best. I had an opportunity to do their podcast. I think right after they first started and I had so much fun with them. What a great couple. I mean, it's a great show and I love those guys. They're great. They are great. And we hope you guys had a great time and we're hoping that you're digging what we're doing over at adfreeshows.com. Uh, don't forget. We're also on Twitter at 83 weeks. If you've got a question about that second nitro, we want to hear it. It's at 83 weeks. If you want to direct your hate tweets about the Jim Cornette rant earlier, or your feelings on Sabu, please send those directly to at E Bischoff. He, I want to remind you as you're, we're loading him up on hate tweets. He also referred to ring of honor as a backyard vanity project for marks. Uh, so make sure you send all of those hate tweets directly to at E Bischoff. <laughs> uh, and if you want me to have some good one-liners for next week, send those to me at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad, but at least for now we're out of time and we'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Get your 83 weeks gear at ericbischoff.com and check out boxagimmicks.com, the official 83 week store with new items added weekly. There's no better time to say I love you, and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate Stevensinger.com, and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready-for-love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but he's recently kicked everything up a notch to better service friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online too. And that's just the beginning gifts that say, I love you every single day backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It's easy. 
Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. What made you come to Save With Conrad? I've refinanced with Conrad before, about three years ago, and then the mortgage company had sent me a letter wanting to refinance me again, and I, so I reached out to Conrad and asked him about it, and he said, no, no, we can do you a much better job than that. that I wouldn't even consider listening to anybody else without talking to Conrad first. So um, how was it working with the team this go-around? Oh, they were great. He told me exactly right up front what he needed, made it real easy for me to uh, upload my forms, sign off on my papers. He kept, um, he kept in contact with me the whole time. For someone that was so far away from me in a different part of the country, I couldn't have got better service if he'd been right next door to me. Very cool. How much money was Save With Conrad able to save you? $100,800. Wow. I think, um, my, my, rate, my rate went down over over 2%. We, we saved eight years off of my loan. And I did the math on that. That 96 months are going to save me $100,800. What would you tell all the podcast listeners about Save With Conrad? Don't be scared to ask. The worst thing that could happen is that he can't help you. And he wouldn't jerk you around. And he tells you right up front that he couldn't help you. Uh, the first time he helped me out was rebuilding credit. The second time he helped me, I had excellent credit. So take the time. It doesn't take 10, 15 minutes to, to apply. Uh, uh, he'll answer your questions. He doesn't make you feel like an idiot when you ask the question. He really enjoys educating you on how to save, how to save, he wants you to save money. Um, He wants you to have a better life. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Hey everybody, this is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game, every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.